0: Welcome to episode number 100 of Backlash Podcast. If you like what we've done here, check out Team Rhino Outdoors. You can find that at www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. Also consider checking out Musky Mayhem Tackle. That'd be muskiemayhemtackle.com for all your musky fishing needs. But enough about accompanies Brad this isn't about companies today this episode is not about that it's about our listeners and it's about our listeners giving us 100 episodes of their attention which is a long time to be hanging around for you know the majority of podcasts that are out there they don't make it to episode 100 and it's not it's never a given and it was never something that we just assumed that people would always listen to whatever spews out of our mouth every single week
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we've been all over the planet, too, with it, Jeff. You know, we've had our highs and lows, and and we've had some outstanding guests, that's for sure. And without them, we couldn't do what we're doing. I think people would get real sick, real quick, listening to me and you with our uh, normal BS, I guess. But honestly, I appreciate all the listeners, and I'm having a blast doing it. I know you have some fun with it as well, Jeff, and that's really, truly what it's about.
0: With this episode, we would like to pose a question to all, all the guests that we have on. There's going to be 11 of them. I can start at the top. It's going to go in this order. it be Dave Slane. Then we're going to talk to Steve Herbeck, Ashley Holmgren, Steve Hiding, Spencer Berman, Mike Keyes, Jeremy Smith, Dick Pearson, Jeff Van Remortal, Rob Manthei, and Josh Borowski. But we talk to all of them individually, and we ask them a question. We're going to ask them You know, one bait, one casting bait, this is, that's changed something about their muskie fishing, whether it be their approach, whether it be just their catches, that bait's been so good. It's just put more fish in the net and they've kind of, they're going to kind of be able to expound on it however they want. We're going to let them kind of go, you know, free and wild. The idea is, you know, roughly 15 to 20 minutes or so with each one of them. I'm sure that when we get Dick on Brad, he's going to, he's going to be typical Dick Pearson and he's going to let her happen. I guarantee it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's always amazing. Every guest has a little bit different um, way about going about themselves. And, and man, I'll tell you what, we could probably make one podcast just with Dick Pearson alone because it, he would give us enough content, probably in about 30 days, we'd have a whole year's worth of shows, I'm guessing, Jeff. But, you know, this is a big deal. It, it's kind of a guide panel of sorts in the sense. You know, the unfortunate side is in a podcast when we're recording like this, We can't really have multiple, multiple people on recording at the same time unless we're all in the same location, but uh, the guide panel sort is um, always interesting because you always get different bits and pieces from everybody, and I think we're going to probably try to do that right now. Absolutely. So,
0: Brad, I think we just want to go over it one more time. We want to thank our listeners for the past 100 episodes. We want to thank all of our guests that came out for the past 100 episodes, and I guess we still want to thank Carrie probably, Brad, even though she hasn't really made it out for, I don't know, what's she, what she been on, like 50% maybe?
1: <laughs> yeah, she just talked to me that the, about that the other day. You know, um, our lives are busy at this time of the year, um, shipping distributor orders and, and box store orders and so on and so forth. Not only them, but also the small shops as well. And it just gets a little overwhelming sometimes, but I'm sure we'll get her back on at some point recording with us
0: plus with all the effort that's gonna take to to put out this episode 100 Musky mayhem shop would probably shut down for like four days to get this one done I know that we have 10 11 guests we need to talk to for a minimum of or roughly 15 minutes and you also have to do the you know we kind of gotta go pre episode and talk about how the episodes gonna end up going a little bit so uh yeah this is gonna be quite the undertaking it's gonna be fun I'm interested to see how it all flows together and in, in uh you know, how it comes out. I'm, I'm curious.
1: Yeah, the crazy part, Jeff, I guess we're saying 15 to 20 minute little segments here from each of them, but guess what's going to happen? We're going to end up talking for a minimum of 35 minutes, probably closer to an hour with each one of these guys. So, you know, that's the unique part that uh, we see on the backside. But at the end of the day, I know I got confidence in your editing, and I'm sure we will get something that's uh, sellable to the public.
0: Absolutely. Well, Brad, we got quite the task ahead of us. Let's get to it. All right. Our first guest on the 100th episode is Dave Slane. And the question we're going to propose all of our guests is one bait, one casting bait that's changed the way you fish. And we kind of want to talk about a little bit about the technique you use with the bait and maybe, you know, how it's changed the way you fish. So Dave, we Really want to thank you for coming on to our hundredth episode. Only the um, the best are allowed on here, or people that pick up their telephone. One of the two, and so you you, you qualified in both categories, though I believe, right, Brad? That's what it was with our, our uh, judging scoring. He he was uh, not only would he answer his phone, but he was also one of the best, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I get to spend a lot of time with Dave in the boat. He's fished muskies a long time, so he does have some knowledge. Let's uh, let's pick his brain.
0: All right, Dave. Well, now it's your turn. You, uh, that's, that's the task at hand. I know you said that it's going to be difficult, but I I feel like you can answer this question. So what's the one casting bait? It doesn't even necessarily have to be the top one, but just one casting bait that's changed the way you fish.
2: You know, I have to go through this. It is really a difficult question because there's been so much throughout the years that impacts where you fish and what you do. And so I had to think through everything. And I actually had to put a lot of thought to this, which is way harder than I expected. And I said, all right, what's the first thing I would do? What's always laid out in my boat for the last 20 years? Well, what's laid out in my boat is always topwater, wood, and bucktails. And a variety, and what I mean by bucktails is a variety of cowgirls of different types. And I thought to myself, you know, if they ask me the favorite topwater, that's easy. It's a pacemaker. You can make it sound so weird, different, do different things to it. I would say that. You ask me favorite wood, I'd say it, it's the wave wobbler. It's because it's so unique and different and easy to use. But then you go and ask me, all right, what's my the, my favorite and or the thing that has changed my ability to fish and how I fish the most? It's the bucktail. But then you look at the bucktail, so that came down, that got easy, right? Bucktail. But then from there, there are so many choices. Uh, I didn't know where to go with it. So where I ended up with it is I said, all right, let's look at them. The cowgirl, the junior cowgirl probably were the, you know, are the first two, obviously. And then you go into the newer stuff. And I said, all right, I got to throw out the ten nine combo. I got to throw out, uh, so the JRs, I got to throw out the new detonator. So it's, they're, they're too new for me to go and comment on, even though I think they're going to be game changers in the future. So I said, for me, what changed me fishing the most was the junior cowgirl. And the reason why is half because I'm a wimp and the other half is because it's so darn effective. And what I mean by that is I can fish it so shallow and I can hover weeds way easier. and It doesn't hurt my fingers as much as 10s or 13s. I can fish it very slow and deep, and I can do a lot of different things on the eight in order to hang out and entice strikes. So my winner and choice is the junior cowgirl, because overall there has not been a lure that not only has changed how I fish, it's, there hasn't been a lure that I haven't caught more fish on than the junior cowgirl.
0: Well, then, Dave, let me ask you, why is it that the junior cowgirl has changed the way you fished? Is there a certain technique that you use that has changed it? Is it, uh, I mean, is it just the profile of it? What what about it has made the junior cowgirl that special for you?
2: Well, think about what the junior cowgirl did. It was, you know, it, it came shortly after the cowgirl. Um, and the cowgirl craze was just this huge and and it actually was easier to fish. So that's one of the reasons how it changed me to fish is I'm able to burn it. like with these little single blade bucktails and because of that speed, I was able to do a lot more, um, bigger bucktail, bigger profile speed. That's I believe getting a lot bigger fish. It changed the way I thought about how I fished deeper because You know, I would never fish bucktails because before, if you have a bucktail, you'd have to really try a single-bladed bucktail. You have to really try to weight that thing down, um, which really impact how it it worked, where when you got the junior cowgirl and the cowgirl, if you just slow roll those things and those blades are just barely turning, you're able to get down into that six feet area, which some of those older single-bladed bucktails, you never could, no matter how slow you went. Um, And those were the biggest ones that, that changed how I fished. Uh, I hope that makes sense to you guys.
1: I do think it does, Dave, you know, I mean, the junior is a a unique bait in the sense of everything that you just said. I still am a bigger cowgirl fan. And I know I've said that on the podcast a ton of times. And the reason I say that is I have the options of uh, changing some stuff right here in the shop too. So I can make them heavier. I can do a lot of different things, but you know, I like the way you can hang the tens more than I like the nines, but uh, all around versatility. I think you hit it on the head. I mean, you can definitely do some unique things with the junior that you can't with the cowgirl.
2: Yeah. And remember the, the whip part too there, Brad is I also brought up that it's easier to bring in at my hands after playing athletics. As long as I did, I got arthritis in my hands. So the, the tens love them. Juniors make it a little bit more easier for me to do it.
1: Makes perfect sense. So has it changed your approach at all?
2: Absolutely. I, so, yeah, absolutely, it's changed my approach. I mean, when you look at that uh, fishing throughout, the, you know, the, the time you always focused—at least I was taught—on just weed edges. And you know, as the cowgirls, uh, the junior cowgirls and cowgirls, but for this matter, the lure I picked, the junior cowgirls are so versatile. You know, I never in a million years when I first started fishing would think that I would be burning over two feet weeds or two foot sand. And it's changed that with the uh, ability just to go and do either one and I have to change lures. I mean, before it was, you know, you get caught up. But with cowgirls, those blades just go right over the top. And those fish are not afraid just to go up and get it. Um, it's changed my uh, opinion of how to fish deeper on the weed edges because now instead I'll go three, four boat lengths off a weed edge and slow roll that uh, junior cowgirl and go down deeper and see more fish if they're not on the weed edge. So I think it, it allowed me to learn more about where I wanted to go and what I, how I wanted to fish overall. And, you know, even open water, like we, we were into the open water, we would just follow um, contours with bait fish of whatever was on a map and we would try to follow uh, that contour around a deep hole and use cowgirls and catch fish in open water, 30 foot of water, six foot down. So, yeah, I think over, overall, it really did allow me to have more confidence to change where I fish, the ability to go look, try new things, uh, have success trying new things. And I think without that ability, I probably wouldn't be as versatile as a fisherman as I am uh, without the junior cowgirl.
0: Well, Dave. For let's just say somebody doesn't have a junior cowgirl in their tackle box. Let's talk about when it is in the season that you like that you're reaching for this bait the most. Can you talk a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, and I'm reaching it. I'm reaching for it in the most as soon as the what that water temperature gets to about 69, 70 degrees. I'm, and all the way up to whenever. Um, obviously, I have once you get to that 80 degrees, you know, try not to fish. But you know, I'm I, once it hits 70 degrees, I'm I'm, I'm reaching for it um the most i reach for it all year round that's another reason why is there's not a time you can't use it um that's another reason why i like it but i reach for it the most once that water temperature hits a higher degree and i love speed with it first and if speed doesn't work then i you know try to go slow uh, or deeper or what have you but overall once that water temperature hits that 70 degree marks when i reach uh, for it the most
1: Well, I I would say, Dave, you know, I mean, that's a pretty typical description when you're using any bucktail, that's for sure. When that water temp kind of gets into that range and zone, that's, uh, it's a go-to bait. And, you know, the neat thing about bucktails are, I mean, you can use them right from day one all the way to the freeze up. So, they are a super versatile bait. It's a bait that pretty much anybody can throw. I completely agree with that.
0: You sure I can handle that one, Brad?
1: handle which one
0: the junior <laughs> cowgirl i am from wisconsin right i
2: spent 18 years in wisconsin you can handle it too
0: <laughs> <laughs> good to know i'll I'll have to add one these are new baits right Brad?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well the junior's been around a little while but uh you know we still sell quite a few of them I, it's a it's an amazing bait no doubt about it
0: yeah i think there's a few products from musky mayhem that will uh I think it will maybe be talked about, like David mentioned earlier on, and I'm I'm curious to see how these other ones stack up uh, with with the uh, other inventions you guys have come up with. It'll be interesting to see how the future unfolds here.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want it to be an info commercial, you know. That's the weird part. But uh, it, it's a it's always been amazing to me. I mean, I've sat in on some guide panels and listened to the whole group, and they will all have an opinion, and I come out of them smiling pretty good a lot of times because people are like. If I had to pick one, this is what it would be. And it, it, a lot of times, like here in Minnesota, it will be the supermodel. And it varies on state-to-state state what people like to throw. But it's pretty interesting, that's for sure.
0: All right, Dave. Well, we want to just thank you for being part of our 100th episode. We also thank you for your time that you have spent with us in previous episodes. And I'm interested to see how this one shakes out. You're the first guy to come on and, and the junior cowgirl gets a vote. And I'm curious to see how the remaining guests what they pull out. I have a feeling we're going to get back to muskie mayhem one or two more times, but I'm not positive, but I, I just have a feeling.
2: Thanks for having me on and congratulations to just a hundred episodes. How great for you guys. You guys are putting on a great product. Thank you for doing it.
0: We thank you and we thank all of our listeners for it. And like I said, you know, I just, I'm glad that you could be a part of it. I know you've been uh, in the, you know, the hoppy family for a long time. And, and I'm just glad that you're able to make some time for us. And, and like I said, thanks a lot. All right, our next guest is Steve Herbeck. We've had Steve on the podcast a few times. Steve, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on this episode. You know, for everybody that didn't know, this is number 100, and it's kind of a celebration of past guests, but we also have some new guests for this episode. So, Herbie, how's the off season going? And, uh, you know, is the schedule starting to book up for 2021? What's your What is your plan for 2021
3: anyways? Well, you know, I mean, normally I'd be on the road rubbing elbows with everybody at the shows and doing seminars and stuff. It's kind of a, another different, different thing going on here. So kind of just making plans, you know, I mean the last 28 years, my life's been on Eagle Lake, you know, and God, I missed it last year, but I, I just can't be held ransom every month to month. Like I, I was last year. If I don't fish, I'm going to (laughs) die. So I'm booking myself up uh, for Southwest, you know, Wisconsin, the Madison chain, the the river, you know, some other lakes. I don't really want to mention the names until the guys get in my truck with me that are really coming on strong. Going to do a bunch of that in May and June. And and then in August, I'll probably get up on Green Bay. And the fall, I'm going to be up on uh, Gladys County and back and forth between Gladys County and the Madison chain. And, hit some other lakes right around here like Big Green and uh, and Lake Geneva that are really coming on strong with some big fish, particularly in the fall. So I'm just going to do what I love to do and let the border situation work itself out. Um, A lot of guests are booking at the time that they have a trip, no matter where they're going to Canada. So if that falls through, they can get some fishing in with me. So it'll work out for me, keep me in shape, keep my mojo going and uh to be quite honest the bit i did in wisconsin last year in uh, september and october it was a gas it was a lot of memories you know the lakes were all exactly where they were i just had a little trouble finding some of the boat landings.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's looking to get out with you this this summer which i highly suggest they do especially because they don't they don't need to drive to canada right now as of as of the recording of this podcast to come fish with you how do they go ahead and do that
3: Oh, well, they can get a hold of me. Uh, my Facebook page has is, is got contacts on it, herbeck.stevej uh, at yahoo.com. My phone number is 608-515-3416. They can get a hold of me on Messenger on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find.
0: Well, Herbie, the reason we had you on this podcast is because we're talking about one topic. And the question we have for this one is one bait that's changed the way you fish And then we'll kind of break down a little bit about about that bait. So you got one bait over the vast years that you've been musky fishing. That's changed the way you musky fish.
3: You know, if it's one bait that is that has caught me more big fish than the others, or something like that. You know, I mean, there's there's been quite an evolution going on in the last you know 25 years with several different families of baits, but conceptually, that changes the way that I evolved and how I looked at fishing, particularly big fish, with the more and more pressure coming on the last 20 years, every year, I would have to say that it's the rubber baits. And particularly since I had such a hand in, you know, getting rolling with the first one, the bulldog has done by far, probably changed my concepts of how I thought muskies react to baits a bait that I really could fish just about everything but right on top, top water, and I I still can do that some ways. But it allowed me to fish all different depths, you know, and and I started fishing deeper than I did back 25 and 30 years ago. It just opened up my concepts of, of what these fish do and where to make contact on these bigger fish more consistently. So I would have to say that, you know, the rubber baits and particularly the Bulldog and just because I had my hands, you know, wet on that right away from the very beginning. And, you know, obviously there's other baits that really did magical things, including, you know, Brad's Double Ten 10 and, and then some trolling baits, you know, like the the Supernaturals and stuff have all made a big impact and stuff. But, you know, they didn't really change what i did with that particular line of baits they were just superb fish catching baits whereas i think the bulldog conceptually did a lot for me as far as chasing fish in, in different zones in the lake at different times of the year and it, it got me learning a lot more about what these big fish do i think
0: sure absolutely I remember uh, I had Brad Rue on my, I have a solo podcast project called the TRO Musky Fishing Podcast, and I had Brad Rue on there, and I believe on that podcast, he actually gave you credit as one of the first guys that almost like embraced the idea of soft plastics. You know, a lot of people kind of, I don't want to say shunned him or turned away, kind of laughed at him, and you were one of the guys that embraced him. So, you know, not only did you, you definitely were on the uh, first prequel.
3: I think the first couple 40 pounders that were ever caught on on bulldogs were caught that very first year i had one in my hands i i saw bernard at the at the musky show it was his first year at the show he had he had the first bulldogs in their first version and and just knowing what i knew about the fish on eagle lake i always call them a, one of the higher forms of life in the musky world they just they seem to condition so fast and they're just so smart it seems like you know a muskie can be and I just thought man these fish are, and it was just unbelievable that first couple three four years that uh, how they reacted to that bait that didn't have all that banging and clanging and and uh, everything else going through it was quite amazing and and then just as, as the bait allowed me to fish deeper and I started learning more and, and the concept of in my mind of fishing edges just like we deer hunt or, or something like that and there's so many edges you know that 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 people don't realize are there you know between you know the wheat edges and, and thermal crying edges and rock to mud edges and daylight daylight to darkness is an edge you know darkness to daylight that's an edge you know it it there's just so if you think edges, and a bait that allows you to fish edges at many, many different depths, you're going, to be in the, you're going to be in and around some big fish, no matter where you're fishing, if they exist in the lake.
1: That's a super interesting point, Ruby talking about those edges and comparing it to hunting. I would agree with you 100%. I think that could probably be a podcast in itself, for sure. Maybe share with everybody a technique both shallow and deep, that you use that bulldog or a specific rubber bait? Well,
3: you know, I, I think there's so many different factors that go into, you know, I, I fish with three 400 people a year. And if there isn't a person that doesn't have, you know, some rubber baits in their tackle box, I know some guys that have, you know, three 400, and they've never thrown all but five of them or something. You know what I mean? So everybody's got them. And I think people just take the kind of retrieves, you know, kind of for granted and you throw them out and you, know, you pull them back. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, it depends a lot upon a bunch of factors that give you an idea or a perception of what the, the activity levels of the fish may be. And, you know, a lot of some of it, some of it is water clarity. People I don't think realize that how much water clarity makes a difference on how fast you work a bait. In my opinion, the clearer the water, the faster you have to work a bait at all times of the year um, to get strikes versus follows. I mean, I just think the clear water fish are geared differently. Clarity of the water makes a big difference. The water temperature makes a big difference. You know, where where the thermal climb is in the lake at that time and what structures you're fishing in relation to it, or lack of the thermocline, both ways it works. Um, there's just so many different factors, but very generally, um, I, I like to work a bait fairly aggressively. Otherwise, unless I'm last in the boat, and I turned the coin shocker many, 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 many years ago, 25 years ago, because I always found that a, a big, bright, the biggest, brightest, ugliest bulldog that I had in the boat. If it was the toughest day. If I worked it very slow and very deep and undulating, even under those high pressure, full front type of days following front with dropping water temps, I could elicit lazy follows that we could come back and catch right before dark, which was usually the only window opening on those kind of days. So I kinda used it even as a as a locator. But that being said, would I have caught some of them by working it really, really fast? It's possible I would have, but you know, I I, I really think in the long run, if you want fights, you need to work a rubber bait fairly fast and erratically, and if you want follows, you work them slow and deep. Unless you just got such a late, right, right? You know, like you've got icicles forming on the lake around the boat. Very generally, I like long over open water. Over over bars and stuff, I like to cast the bait as far as I can. I like to let it sink down to of where I feel a count of where I feel I'm just above the thermocline or above the another edge, which is the, the the edge of where light turns to dark, where you can't a fish can barely see a bait anymore. Fish use that edge of darkness as their most one of their most prolific ambush spots besides weed edges and stuff. It's amazing how they use it. And if you can get that level, especially under hard fish waters, and, and work right above that level and, and know where that level is, you're going to be surprised how many big fish you're going to be in contact with more consistently than just real low-light conditions, you know? So very generally, I work bait long-pulls with pops and hops in between so the most important thing is a lot of people work their baits very very fast with fast reels I like to work my bait very fast with medium speed reels because if I work it with a fast reel I lose a very important thing sometimes and that is a split second roll or kill after every pull or or pop that I make rather than just a continual pull 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 that bait has to actually come nose up a little bit and roll just a little bit, even just a little bit in between each pull and, and, uh, and or rip. That is where that belly roll and that flash of whatever bait color that they have on the side of it, whether it's, you know, paint or whether it's, you know, flex or whatever, when that hits that sun and that roll and that belly flashes, that's what triggers fish. And I, I think that it's real important to make sure that you have some split-second pauses. It's just milliseconds, but it's a pause. And that bait needs to pause for a second. Whether you're working it short, fast pulls and rips, or you're working long pulls for more visibility, like over open water and deeper humps and stuff like that. When I'm working over cover or, or submergent weeds or long weed edges, I'm usually working them fairly shorter, kind of hoppier uh, movements, trying to make sure I keep the control of the bait from from getting in the weeds and stuff like that and and cause more instantaneous reaction strikes the minute they see it. Whereas in open water, you're not going to create that. Open water fish, they see it. They come for it. They're not ambushing it like a fish on the weed edge or right hiding below a, a, a rock tip you know, right on the rock tip of the spine or something. The fish in open water, they see it, they come after it. So the longer the
1: pulls and the longer that you can keep it visible and stuff like that is, I think, real important. I think, honestly, you know, the stuff that you talk about, Herbie, I always love listening to. I mean, you always have different ways of of talking about anything and everything that we can do in muskie fishing and that alone should uh, drive some business your way this summer. I lay awake a lot at night thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's just incredible. I, I've told so many people, I'm like, you owe it to yourself. If you're truly a diehard hard muskie angler, you need to go spend some time in the boat with you. I've had the the chance to be able to do that, and man, I'm telling you, a lot of things that we've discussed over the years, it just uh, it's stuck in my in my pocket for long terms of time. So. I truly appreciate everything that you bring to the table. Well, it's all a big big
3: fraternity, and we all hopefully help each other along the way, you know? Absolutely.
0: Well, Steve, we just want to thank you for coming out for not only this episode, but your contributions in past episodes as well. And I know that based off the topic, starter topic tonight of, you know, talking edges, I think that Brad wants to talk more about edges alone, and, and I think I'd, you know a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear all your thoughts on it. So we'll probably get you back on at some point before we're fishing again. So we just want to thank you for coming out, and I'll give you one last chance if somebody's looking to book a guide trip with you this year. What's the best way they can go about doing that?
3: Just uh, look me up on Facebook and message me or or give me an email, J at yahoo.com. My number is 608-515-3416. And even if you don't want to book if you just want to talk fishing, You know, I mean, like I said, it's a long winter these days with what's going on. You know, if you got some ideas that have been bugging you and you want to talk fishing, don't be afraid to give me a call. It's what I do. It's what I've done all my life. It's not a bother.
0: Well, like like I said, we, you know, hopefully somebody will take you up on that offer. I know that uh, I enjoy having these conversations with you. It's always, you're always a wealth of knowledge. And like I said, I, you know, we're super pleased that you were, that you were able to make it on this episode. And thanks again. And, you know, we look forward to talking to you again in the future.
3: All right, you guys, take care of yourselves. You too, Herbie.
0: All right, our next guest on our podcast this week is Ashley Holmgren. And she's going to talk a little bit about devoted angling. That's her new venture that she's doing with her husband, John Holmgren from Two Seeker Guide Service. If you're familiar with our podcast, you've heard John before. In fact, I think he was on, I don't remember when it was, five, seven, 12 episodes ago. Time goes so fast, I can't tell you for sure. But Ashley, thank you very much for coming out tonight and and talking to us. We've never had a full episode with you, and hopefully someday we can have that conversation. But for the sake of tonight's podcast, why don't you talk a little bit about your new venture that you have going on?
4: That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, part of Devoted Angling. Uh, John and I have, um, we've really brainstormed, I guess, you know, as far as what we stand for and just kind of between the two of us really what musky fishing means to us and so through those conversations and the years that we fished together we kind of wanted to try to put it all together so that you know just for even us to have be able to to put out some videos to be able to watch and remember our adventures on and we have two girls um that also like to fish now and so it's been a lot of fun just kind of you know working with them and, and getting out there and having a lot of adventures with them and getting out there fishing and teaching them what it means and teaching them you know patience and h- how to get out there and just enjoy enjoy fishing and because we enjoy it so much and so yeah and we just we always want to encourage other people to get out there and to try it and you know I think a lot of families might think that sometimes it's hard to get out there fishing or hard to get your kids in the boat you know when you're casting all day and stuff but We're kind of trying to show that it's not difficult. You can do it, and it's really something that you can love as a family.
0: For sure. And what's the best way for people to go about finding more information on this?
4: Um, We have um, an Instagram account that we started, and that's uh, Devoted Angling, and you can also uh, search us on Facebook as well.
0: So the question we have tonight, and we've asked our previous guests on this is, What's one casting bait that's changed the way you fish? And obviously we, you know, we've said all along, this can be any bait from way back in the day to something that's fairly new. But what do you have for a bait that's changed the way you fish?
4: You know, I have to say um, overall, you know, throughout the years, I tend to throw a lot of bucktails and, you know, I like to throw black nicks just because I feel like, you know, you can kind of throw it in any kind of weather and, and it's kind of a really universal bait. I feel like you can, change seeds, and it's just kind of always in the box that I always go to um, but I have to say uh, this year we're really fortunate to be able to test out the new trigger um, the Muskie mayhem trigger I don't know if you've heard about it yet but it has a, a seven nine blades on it that has offset blades so it really makes a loud thump and vibration through the water and so we had just gotten this every year my husband and I go on an anniversary trip um, somewhere new every year and and so this year, we were super fortunate to be able to get this and, and um, I threw it on right away. And I mean, seriously, it was unreal how much like action I got. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, there were fish just flying at the boat. I caught fish. I lost fish. I had fish following. And they're like, just, it just seemed to really get their attention. Just the offset blades and the different, you know, it was just something different, I guess, that the, the fish really paid a lot of attention to. And it was just awesome to see that firsthand and so I feel like that was just a really good new innovative bucktail that I feel like I definitely am going to throw right away next year and I'm excited to try out the, the detonator the bigger one and I just feel like it's something you know different as a must fisherman you sometimes you're fishing the same water over and over again and it just feels like you are always looking for something something different to get their attention and i I was really fortunate enough to be able to see that firsthand that it did.
1: Yeah, it's really cool that what you and John did this past summer. I mean, you guys had the bait right away. You guys were helping do some of the R&D work on that particular bait. And it spawned the detonator, as you said. I mean, it, you know, we we started with the trigger. And as we kind of went along with that, it uh, it just developed into the bigger style of bait as well, being the detonator. But I think one of the unique, parts to that whole thing is Danny Herbik spent a bunch of time with us working on this as well. And what he kind of came up with is that metal sleeve that's underneath the clevises. And I think that really is a uniqueness to it as well. And um, that that sleeve just basically just makes a grind that the fish obviously just truly love. So it's been a cool bait. It's been a great release. And uh, we're super excited about running into the next season with it as uh, more and more anglers are going to be throwing it.
4: Definitely.
1: So, Ashley, you know, the second part to this whole bit, I guess, if we're, if we're going to be talking about this, we've asked different people is there a different approach with this bait that you're talking about? Is there a different technique that you actually started using because of this bait?
4: You know, I feel like when I threw it, um, I really tried to burn it hard. And, and I knew we were fishing kind of, you know, it was like the later part of summer, um, but I found. You can almost feel it grind as you're reeling. And I feel like you get the most momentum and the most effect, I should say, when you're reeling fast. And so I, you know, I, I just tried to burn it the best that I could. And I seem to really get the most out of the bait.
1: What reel are you using? I mean, you're looking for speed, it sounds like. And I, definitely at that time frame when you guys were on that trip, you were talking about what reel are you choosing to use so that you can actually really get it going fast?
4: Um, we use the Revo Toro, um, and it's got the, the bigger crank, so you can really get, you know, more, more mileage for your buck, I should say. <laughs> I mean, you can really crank it hard, and it goes, you know, pretty fast. They got the extra crank on there, which really helps. On
0: this bait, are you using it over, you know, is it a shallow structure bait? Or are you counting this thing down to get down a little bit deeper? Were you, you know, was it weeds? Was it rocks? What do you think was, you know, what type of structure were you using when you were having success with this one?
4: Um, We found a lot um, right off points and, you know, kind of just basically off of any um, good shelf or, you know, any rocky structure. I mean, we basically threw it a lot of different places, but I found that those were probably the best.
0: So, Ashley, when you finally got your hands on one of these triggers, what time of year was it that you were having success using it?
4: Uh, We got at the end of July and started using it um, in August. I feel like that time of year is really when, you know, things start warming up and and the fish start going up shallow and so yeah, so I would just try to get it up there, you know, as far as I could and burn it.
0: So speed obviously isn't something new, but it's obviously something that is effective. Brad, I mean this question would be kinda of for you and you and her both. Was this bait built for speed? Is that kind of the, the idea behind it, Brad? Or is, or is she just uh, you know, burning her Mach Ten and having a lot of success and that was just kind of a a byproduct of it or you know, or did you guys design this bait to be burned? Well,
1: I think the byproduct to it is was the timing of the year that she was using it and possibly the the body of water that they were on. Speed definitely is a key factor in catching fish. I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast. I talk about it in my boat every day. Speed is a huge factor. But ultimately, no, it was not designed just for speed. And uh <laughs> it becomes apparent. I mean, I've been going through a lot of different video footage. We're using them after dark. We're slowing it down. You know, you're still going to get that grind and you're still going to get that wobble. It's uh it's an all around bucktail. That's for sure. And it's a little smaller profile and it allows you to do a lot of neat things with it. And speed is one of those.
0: Well, Ashley, we thank you a lot for coming out for this episode. We have a, we're going to have a pile of guests on this episode for anybody that's, you know, listening and wondering how many we're going to have. We're, the The plan is to have at least 10, and, uh, you know, we're happy to have you on as one of those 10, hopefully someday we can have you on for a complete episode and talk about, you know, seasonal strategies and talk about an entire, you know, musky fishing season with you. But, uh, for the sake of this episode, we just wanted to talk about one specific bait for people that are interested in getting, you know, more information on devoted angling. Why don't you talk about that again for a minute?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Um, yeah, well, we, uh, if you'd like to give us a follow, um, we are on Instagram, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we're working on some getting some videos together of musky fishing and, and all around. So, yeah, if you'd like to take a look and see what we've been up to, that'd be, that would be awesome. So I had a lot of fun today. Thank you, guys.
1: Well, thank you, Ashley. I, I know that it's not just musky fishing, though, correct? I mean, you guys have some ice yeah. fishing stuff that's already out on YouTube now.
4: We do, we do, yep. Um, yeah, we do a lot of ice fishing as well, you know, a lot of pan fishing, and, and we're trying to get uh, an eel pout video together too, and we're working on some, a lot of fun stuff. So, yeah, kind of all around.
1: We stay busy fishing. And it's a family event. I mean, I know you guys are with your family all the time, which is awesome. So I truly appreciate your time, and um, it was fun.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad.
1: All right,
0: continuing on with episode 100, we have Steve Hiding. If you're interested in knowing all about Steve, or if you don't know about him, he's definitely a household name in the muskie industry, check out episode 38 of our podcast. It's been quite a while since we've had Steve on. Steve, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to make an appearance on episode 100. We really appreciate it.
5: Hey, guys. Thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate that you thought to include me in episode 100. That's a great milestone. Congratulations on reaching that and i hope there's many many
0: hundreds more i certainly hope there are too as you know i mean because there's always something to talk about in muskies as we were talking a little bit pre-show it's been a little while since we've had you on and i mean episode 100 last time we saw you was 38 and so we'd love to have you on for a full episode here sometime before you you get out and really start hammering away on muskies because i know your schedule probably gets even busier although maybe it doesn't with the muskie hunter stuff maybe you're busier now than you are during the fishing season i don't know what what's I guess maybe we should ask, what is your schedule like these days?
5: Well, I am still working full-time with the magazine. You know, people have always thought that, you know, I'd love to have my job because, you know, it'd be great to go fishing all the time. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I got a 40-hour-a-week gig here with Muskie Hunter. Um, you know, with no sports shows this year, it's a little bit quieter. i got more time to work on the magazine, per se, instead of traveling, which, um you know, his shows are wonderful. It's great to shake people's hands and say hello and you know, meet the meet the people who, you know, support your magazine. That's always wonderful. But uh, you know, having a quieter winter right now, I'm not missed you know, I am not I am enjoying it, let's just put it that way. And uh so I, I, I can just actually spend more time on the magazine and you know, we are launching Muskie Hunter launched new website and you know, just this week and you know, there, there's you know, it's been a glitch or two that'd be and content that i had to add to it so i'm i'm glad to be here at the desk working on it and uh the new website's really cool i think guys will really like it it's a huge upgrade on the old one
0: yeah i'll have to check that out when we're done here
5: so yeah it has got greg greg's vision you know the editor greg thomas his vision for it is to have a lot more you know up-to-date content he's he's trying to tap into i think every guide he knows to provide fishing reports and uh I'm scheduling a bunch of articles that have previously appeared in the magazine. So it's going to be constantly updated every, you know, every day there's going to be an update to it. So, um, the the idea is to have it as kind of a hub for musky fishing and, and the old site had kind of stagnated and uh, I'm, I'm I'm excited about the new one.
0: Yeah. That sounds like something definitely a lot of musky anglers are going to want to check out. So Steve, for the purpose of this one, we want to ask you a question. I guess the, we've asked a few other guests this already, and we have a few more to go. One casting musky bait that has either changed your approach, kind of helped put a bunch of fish in the boat, or however you want to go about it. I'm sure you've had some time to think about it. So why don't we talk about one lure for a little while?
5: Okay. Well, Brad's going to like this a lot because I'm going to talk about the double cowgirl. Because that bait, when it was introduced, I saw fish do things with the, you know, behind that bait. I've never, ever seen fish. To baits before or since, you know, the ones that they, they come in three feet behind it, a foot below it, you know, the kind that never eat. And then you take them into a figure eight and they eat. And it was like, the first time I saw that, I was like, are you kidding me? That fish wasn't supposed to eat. And then the next one did too. And all of a sudden, we knew we were onto something. And the cowgirl, you look at the, what it did in this industry. I mean, not only did it give everybody cowgirl elbow, but it, uh, it it forced the tackle manufacturers, the rod manufacturers, the real manufacturers to really upgrade and create bait, or I'm sorry, create products for that specific bait to make it easier to cast that specific bait. And I don't think they really achieved that because it's still a tough bait to throw. Thanks a lot, Brad. But the one thing about that bait is that it taught me to be much more aggressive in my fishing It was the second year we had it. We were already, you know, I had power fished before, but the second year we had that bait, you know, we're just out there with sometimes with two, three cowgirls going and just motoring, trolling motor on a relatively high rate of speed, casting overlapping casts. One bait's coming back into the boat, the other one's going out, because you're kind of timing it that way. You're overlapping your cast, just covering water. And the remarkable thing was the number of fish that we caught just because we were fishing more Quickly, more rapidly, covering more water, contacting more fish, and you know, of course, back in those days, they were still dumb to the cowgirl, and we were catching way more, way more fish than ever before. That bait taught me to be to be more aggressive, and and you know, that it, it, it's no secret that cowgirl isn't as effective as it was, but you know. It, face it. Probably every fish in the world has been caught on one by now, and they don't like to repeat that out-of-water experience. So, you know, the second bait now might be different, but yet we're still fishing it aggressively and catching a lot of fish. Maybe we're downsizing that second bait. Coming through with uh, another spinner, you know, that double cowgirl, you know, the big 10s coming through. Uh, Coming back with one that's a little smaller with double 7s, double 8s, or whatever. That picking up the ones that aren't going to eat the cowgirl or maybe the cowgirl wakes them up and then that second one comes through and that one picks them up. It's just created so many opportunities but it all comes down to fishing
1: fast, fishing aggressively and contacting more fish. That's the truth. That's super cool that you brought that up, Steve. And, you know, I appreciate it very much. You know, it's amazing. I think there's a lot of people that think that, you know, every fish has been caught on it, blah, blah, blah. But it's amazing how many people have quit throwing it. And so guess what? I started throwing it again. <laughs> and, and it's working really well still. But it's an incredible bait. What was some of your approach with that bait as you would go into a certain area? Say you're coming up to a shallower weed line. How did you effectively use that bait?
5: Well, in many cases, you know, I was getting right up shallow. But, you know, it depends on the weed line and how big the bait. Uh, the weed flat is if there's a weed flat per se you know starting on the outside and gradually working up but you know by just fishing more quickly and aggressively you know you, you can cover that huge weed flat a whole lot more quickly one thing that i learned to do with that bait too was you know the, to just even make the retrieve more aggressive you know to you know, certainly i always synchronize the bucktail at when it hit the water or spinner when it hit the water you got you got it coming back. You're your thumbing the spool set. When it hits the water, it lays out, laser spinning when it's going. You know, I learned that 30 years ago, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I learned to do that. But to speed up, slow down, bulge the bait. Yeah, I knew about bulging and such like that, but, you know, the cowgirl just kind of took that all to a different level. And, uh, you know, and, and and that, again, you know, translated to other lure styles to speed them up, slow them down. I I, I fish another brad you know brad roos uh swimming dog when i'm casting to open water muskets here in northern wisconsin i'm often fishing the swimming dog exactly like i fish a cowgirl you know it, it's hitting the water and i'm not letting it get deeper than a foot in the water column even though i'm out over 40 50 feet of water and i'm speeding it up slowing it down you know kind of hurrying it up into that figure eight making the big figure eight hang move in the corners and, you know, open water, you don't catch as many and figure rates. but that speed up and slow down out over the open water, it's much better than zombie casting. And uh, it's incredible how many times you'll be doing that, and all of a sudden you just about get the rod ripped out of your hands because they hit it so hard. Again, that, that all comes back to how I learned to fish the cowgirl back in the day. And what you said, Brad, about, you know, that people stopped throwing the cowgirl. And, I mean, I think people stopped throwing the cowgirl because they didn't want to throw it because their elbows hurt. You know, just suck it up, Sal. You know, do do some dumbbell curls, you know, before season. Do something. You know, get yourself in shape and fish the bait because it's going to catch fish. And I think people wanted to stop fishing it. They were looking for excuses to stop fishing it. And, oh, gee, it's not catching fish like it was. Um, okay, well, now I don't I have to throw it and I can whine that I'm not catching fish anymore. Well, you know, now there are fish. Yeah, there are fish coming up. You know, not every 35 inch yet has been caught on a cowgirl. So yes, that bait is becoming, you hate to say that a bait that's only been out for 15 years is into a renaissance period, but maybe it is, but you know, I was seeing the same thing last year when the topwater bite was so good in late August and September, you know, people are throwing fat bastards. And again, I didn't name that bait. So don't complain to me if you don't like the the last, like the name that, you know, that bait, you know, that pop, 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 everybody's hearing that thing. And I would fishing with friends last year and i was coming behind them with a you know a globe and you know just an old style globe and catching fish on that fish that were overlooking the fat bastard in front or whatever other tail spinner that was was being thrown in front and here comes a globe right behind it those fish are coming up and whooping that so yeah you know throwing a bait that you maybe haven't thrown for a while is a very smart thing to do
0: so, Steve, you mentioned the grind, I guess you would say, with throwing this cowgirl. Do you have a setup in particular that you use for throwing, you know, big double-bladed bucktails?
5: Well, yeah. You know what I mentioned earlier about doing arm curls and such and shoulder shrugs and that. Yeah, you know, I've got a set of dumbbells in the basement, and I worked out with that for about two months before it's what I even call cowgirl season now just to build up the strength in my arms. And, you know, at this time of year, I'm on an elliptical every day uh, to maintain core strength, but your arms need it too. And so I'm, I've i got, the, you know, a 25-pound set of dumbbells. You don't need to, you know, try to be uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just do reps, build up the strength, you know, build up your endurance. And, you know, I'm doing curls, reverse curls, hammer curls, uh, shoulder shrugs. You know, trying to get myself in shape for throwing that bait. And then it's when I'm really serious about using it. I'm when that time comes, yeah, I've got three different rod and reel setups that I'm using. And one of them comes down to just a, uh, you know, it's a nine foot St. Croix Legend Elite or Legend Tournament, you know, heavy action rod, uh, whichever I've got with me in the boat and rigged up, you know, 100 pound test line because you should with that base and then a, a self 130 uh, pound test fluorocarbon leader. And believe it or not, I've got a five to one retrieve ratio reel on there. It's, I still have some Daiwa, I'm sorry, St. Croix AC 300s with the power handle on that. I keep them going because that is just an outstanding reel. The same thing as a Daiwa uh, Millionaire 300 or Luna 300. That reel is still available. St. Croix hasn't had their reel per se for, I don't know, seven, eight years now. But they're worth that. those reels are worth it. I send them back and get them rebuilt every couple of years because they need it, but they're worth keeping in action. But if you want the same reel, get the dial Luna. And that five-to-one retrieve ratio allows me to cast, speed up, slow down. It's a good overall reel to have on that rod. But I, I've, I've learned over the years that there are times that you, know, you can fish too fast with the cowgirl, and I still have some uh, some of the uh, Revo Toro winches by Abu Garcia uh, with that 4.6 to 1 retrieve ratio and a skinny spool. And I use those for the times I have to slow down. And then there are times you have to go fast. And I've got a Shimano Trax 500 on another, you know, nine foot heavy St. Croix, um, either legend elite or legend tournament. And I've got a, a Trank 500 for those times you got to go fast because that reel will do it and make it a whole lot easier on your wrists and fingers and elbows and everything else. So when I'm throwing the cowgirls, I've got three different rod and reel setups. Um, the rods are all the same, but the reel setups are different. And, you know, one's for overall, general, you know, speed up, slow down. One is for when i got to go slow. And one's for when it's time to go fast. The must be still them doing it doing that so i still use those rod and real setups
1: i think one of the last components to this whole thing steve you know you're talking about building up some muscle and uh, getting in shape for muskies one other thing that could be maybe added to that whole side of it is the new cbd oil <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> helped me i've never
5: done that so um you know I, i'm sure it does help in some way shape or form but i can't talk about it maybe you should talk about it brad but i i, I don't have that experience all I know is that if, if I work out ahead of throwing the cowgirls, or really, I mean, quite frankly, I hate to admit it, but I'm 60 years old now, if I work out ahead of the season, I don't have problems with my arms. I don't have sore spots with my arms. And my elbows aren't normal. You know, I dislocated one and hyperextended another in sports when I was a kid. You know, I, But yet I don't have elbow problems when I'm you know, casting cowgirls. And it comes down to getting in shape ahead of time. And I, I, I think that's as important as the equipment that you're using for casting the bait. If you want to have endurance, if you want to be able to cast that bait for 10 or 12 hours, you know, whatever the length of daylight is, or however long you're going to fish, you got to be in shape to do it. And uh, you know, if you're not in shape, I'm, I do this, you know, I, I do the curls, the, you know, the hammer curls. I'm, I'm doing that while I'm watching television in the evening. I mean, how much easier can that be? And it, it, it helps so much later, or, or so much more when I'm on the water later and later in the in the year, and uh, I, I can't stress that enough that how much that can help a fisherman.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll never get an argument from me on that, Steve. I mean, uh, it definitely makes a difference, and you know, no matter what you do, whether it's being been working out or whatever, you know, those first three, four days of the season. They're usually a li- you're a little stiffer in the mornings, but you kind of shake that free after about a week. So I totally get what you're saying.
5: Well, that's what they make uh, whiskey for in the evening, and a leave for in the morning. So <laughs> you're
0: right. Anybody have anything else to add to that?
5: Outside of the fact that you know that that base is still outstanding, if people would take the time, if, instead of just looking, you know, so many people today so many musty fishermen today are looking for that magic bait. It, they're always looking for something new. It amazes me how much people will spend for a bait online you know, or in social media groups, You know, a bait that's not even proven. Just because it's prettier, it's got an awesome paint. job. the fish don't care. It's how you fish the bait. It's, it, and, and the cowgirl is the bait that allows you to cover water and fish aggressively, and it's just translated to everything else. I mean, I, I fish a sewage faster than anybody i know and that's because i'm you know with my regular fishing partners you know they're good enough running the boat that i'll let them run my boat and we'll switch off just to be fair because you know if the fish are eating that first bait through and you're second in the boat or third in the boat you're going to have a long day or a long week so with my regular fishing partners we're switching off running the boat you know in between spots and typically if we're uh, you know it's midsummer and the conditions are right. That cowgirl's coming through first. Well, what's the second bait going to be through? There were times years ago it was always a cowgirl. Now it's going to be something different. But you now I'm fishing a suic faster than anybody I know because I'm off fishing a suic right behind a cowgirl, and I I catch a lot a lot of fish on suicks, and that you know you don't have to fish them slow like a lot of people think. It's not necessarily a finesse bait. You know, I, I go with big wide sweeps of the rod. So it, it, it might swing that bait might swing four or five feet in one direction before it hangs. And then it gets pulled back another four or five feet. And because you have to to keep up with the cow growth, but it still gets eaten. And so that bait, you know, like I said, that, that translated to so many different applications. And it all comes down to fishing aggressively, covering water, contacting active fish, and you catch more.
0: Well, I don't think I could have said it any better myself. I mean, you just nailed it on the on the cowgirl, and then you gave us a bunch of extra tips there on the SUIC, which maybe I should speed up my retrieve on the SUIC yet too because I throw them a ton, but I'm usually kind of slow, so maybe that's something I need to add to my arsenal for, for this season. But, um, Steve, we just want to thank you for coming out and joining us for this episode, and we look forward to spending you know maybe an hour or so talking muskies before the season starts. So thanks again for coming out, and we really appreciate your time.
5: Hey, glad to do it, and thanks for having me, and thanks, thanks for thanking me for your hundredth episode.
0: Absolutely, we uh, we're looking to get the best, and that's where that's where you come in.
5: I appreciate it, guys.
0: Thank you. All right, our next guest is Spencer Berman with Spencer's Angling Adventures and Spencer Guides, primarily out of St. Clair. So we're kind of trying to go around the horn musky wise, getting a bunch of different people to talk about a different, you know, variety of areas. So Spencer, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us on this episode. How are things going today?
6: Absolutely great. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know you—you you know this is still a busy time of year for you. So on this episode, we're talking about one casting bait that's made an impact in your fishing, and we'll talk a little bit about you know technique and location and that that kind of stuff. But so for this episode, what's what's your one bait that you're that you think has changed, I guess, your outlook on fishing, your fish catches or however you want, whatever angle you want to take with it.
6: Yeah. So I, my, my number one go-to bait, the bait I'm probably the most associated with would be a, a pounder bulldog by Muscaton Um, You know, I fish, I fish on Lake St. Clair primarily and guide out there, but uh, you know, any, anywhere that I've ever fished, there's always been a good rubber bite and, you know, as the, as the pounder, um, kind of has evolved, you know, I've, I've always been more of an open water fisherman. I'm, I'm, I really like using electronics and trying to find fish in open water. And that pounder has just been an unbelievable tool for me. And, and actually, as I've kind of, you know, I, I at one point earlier in my career, I guided in a couple of different locations in Minnesota, uh, and in Indiana as well. Um, and you know, it, I've had just a, tons of success in all those places, you know, throwing big rubber, particularly particularly the pounder and then uh just in the last 10 to 12 years the the evolution that bait has gone through uh coming from china back to america and then all the new different tweaks to it they're going to a pro dog which is a flexible harness which allows for a lot more up and down action in the bait and now all the nose the different weighting systems we have for them uh has really just opened up a whole whole new arsenal for us and really kind of changed the game and you know it's, it's always been a always been a great bait always been something i really associated with and uh you know it definitely is my my go-to my first bait out of the box and what i catch the vast majority of my fish on no matter where
1: i fish really you know one of the neat things about this the pounder spencer is i i ha- actually had one of the original prototype models of that bait and i'll never forget i think i got it somewhere in like august maybe september and i had one And it was kind of just a pure white, and I actually put a little bit of red dye on it. And, of course, the whole thing almost turned pink, but it didn't matter. (laughs) The fish just went bonkers after that bait. And um, I had that bait for probably two years, and it had been re-welded multiple times. You know, it was all gouged up. It caught so many big fish. I had a client about three years after getting that thing actually cast it off one day, and that was kind of a heartbreaker. But one of the neat things that we did with that bait was— we were casting it about, obviously, but also we were doing some trolling with it and uh, jerk trolling. And it kind of changed the game a little bit for me as well. How about you? I mean, what, what has it done for you as far as like uh, an everyday presence? And you know, it's not maybe a bait that just anybody wants to throw. Cause it is, it's a pound, it weighs out. It's a big bait, but it's a great presentation of these fish. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different things that, that, uh, especially the pounder
6: being kind of like the, the quintessential big rubber lure kind of the first one that came out. Granted the the, the reg dog and the mag dogs were big uh, at, when they, at the time when they were introduced, but the pounder was really a different level. And it just seems like that, that water displacement has just such an uh, unbelievable effect on these fish. And, and for me, Obviously, I'm Saint Clair. Saint Clair always been a trolling lake. You know, I was one of the, the first guys really to cast it. And, and to be honest with you, when we first started casting, you know, in some of the open water areas on Clair, I mean, it took a while really to really just get out there and truly go in the middle of nowhere. It was a, it was a process that happened over time. And and having baits that that would move a lot of water and could call fish in a in a large basin area where you're trying to cover huge distances and you're you're taking yourself you know putting yourself at a slight disadvantage by not trolling from a from a water cover you know covering standpoint it gained you a a huge advantage when you could use lures to displace this much water and could call these fish in i think from a lot further than a lot of the smaller baits would do and you know obviously st Clair's a trophy fishery but also has a very diverse bait fish population both big and small and it seemed like that the vast majority of these fish, whether it be 38 inches or or 55 inches would be willing to eat this bait and they could feel it and sense it from a long way away and would engage it from, from a further way away. Uh, and you know, obviously some of the small rubber baits, you know, still catch a lot of fish, but I don't think they're, they don't get the water displaced. They don't, they don't allow you to cover as much ground, um, as far as how far the fish are willing to, to move to, to engage those baits. And now moving forward, you know, we've been doing this now for a long time. You know, I've, you know, pretty much the open water thing really really took off in, in 08, 09, and, and 10, and 11. Um, and I pretty much feel like I've kind of we had it kind of dialed in and by about 13 or 14 doing, you know, obviously it's changed with the water and things, but we kind of had a rough idea what we're doing now uh, by then. And, and with these baits and with, with that success that we had using these products in these different areas that were kind of a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit different, uh, we've managed to incorporate other baits into that same pattern targeting these fish like a big example of the last few years for us has been bucktails I and mean, we're throwing bucktails in open water over 20 to 24 foot of water with with no weeds nothing but musky and bait fish uh just no countdown just straight cranking them cr- you know ripping them in in areas that you really wouldn't think of as bucktail water and having unbelievable amounts of success And it was the original success of the rubber in these environments that that made us comfortable enough to go out and explore these areas and then to bring in other lures like the the 9 over 10 combo musky mayhem baits were were phenomenal for me. And it seemed like whenever you had some chop and some overcast and the fish are willing to feed high in the column, the bucktails were were incredibly effective in the summer. And the rubber always played its parts It's open water. But. You know, on on those days, and they're willing to feed high. The bucktails were were really good as well, and it was that that big open water presentation that originally, you know, allowed us to kind of delve into that bite in the first place, and got us the confidence to to do everything that we're doing now, no matter what bait it is, really.
0: So, Spencer, I know, like as a tournament angler, you've kind of been all over the place. You've been, mm-hmm. I mean, basically every almost everywhere that muskies swim, as far as you know, traveling with the trail. Have you found yeah, any places? Yep where this bait isn't effective where you throw pounders and you can't catch them literally those fish won't eat it because i know like there's typical guys say like some of the stuff out east it's mostly small baits northern wisconsin same kind of thing i mean based off your success have has this been a tactic that's proven to be effective almost everywhere you go
6: well, I mean, I, I think obviously nothing is the most effective technique every day in, day in and day out on every body of water. I mean, there's always different variations of, of the success level. But for, for me, I mean, rubber is always something that is high on the chart. It's always going to be something that, you know, it's going to have its day. And, and we've, you know, when I fished the trail, uh, I mean, we, we did that. So, I mean, we fished the St. Clair event back in 2018. My, my partner, Matthew Quintano, and I won it throwing pounders. Obviously that's St. Clair and big rubber. So it's not a huge shocker, but we, you know, right after that, we went down to Indiana and and fished Webster for the championship, which is, you know, more of a Southern fishery. And it also is, is a fishery that has a huge, uh, several huge year classes of fish under 40, you know, 40 and less inches. So between 31 and 40, really, it seemed like that was where the vast majority of the, the stock fish were coming in at just. Goofy ways that the stocking has gone over the last decade or so. You know, we were we threw almost all pounder. We, we caught ten fish and won that won the championship. That you lucky enough to do that. And of our ten fish, we had eight of them uh, on on pounders. So and that was and our our biggest fish was only forty one inch. Uh, most of the fish we're you know, you're getting were in the mid thirties, which obviously you're not thinking are going to be necessarily the highest percentage deal to throw to throw pounders. And I to be perfectly honest. Matt started throwing a pounder out of the gate in pre-fishing. I even said maybe you're you're sizing out a few of the fish, but give it a shot. And it was not two casts later; he caught a thirty and a half incher on it. I, that was on Wednesday of pre-fishing. It's like all right, I'll just you know you you just can never never count them out, no matter what your your size of fish you're targeting, no matter what you know what you're dealing with. And I I know from when I used to guide down there that those lakes are chock full of ten to twelve to fourteen to you know even eighteen plus inch shad and that's what those fish are targeting and uh you know there's you know they're still muskies they're always willing to take down a big meal and if you've ever sucker fish something like that it's it's amazing what a 33 34 35 inch piker northern will will eat when it comes to sucker size and the 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 pounders that we're throwing are still much smaller than most of those in my opinion when it comes to a profile standpoint so uh it shouldn't surprise anybody that they can be effective on you know on on all different all different size skews and and now with the uh, with the different weighting systems between you know adding extra weight or the unweighted versions of any of these rubber baits you know you can fish them high you can fish them low uh, you know they're very very versatile so for me I mean I've definitely seen bite you know times at lakes when it's when it's more a bucktail bite than anything else and that's just the way it is and I've seen it where it's twitch bait bite and everything you can describe but day in day out for me I mean you look around at, at our tournament results and just tournament results in general it's hard to argue that rubber is not you know, maybe the highest producer out there, or if not very, very
1: close. So maybe you could share a little bit, Spencer, on what equipment mm-hmm. you're using to throw that powder. Oh yeah, that actually was something I wanted to mention. So that's another, another
6: cool thing that, you know, I, I would say Brad that, that your double cowgirl originally did. And, and uh, that the big rubber, the powder uh, has also done in the sense, that those are probably the two lures out there that has changed our gear, I mean, arguably more than anything else, just because of the, interesting dynamics it takes to throw those and how they've kind of pulled the whole industry forward from an evolutionary standpoint just because they are bigger pull harder you know and are heavier than than a lot of the other baits so for me I mean I I really like heavy rods and that that was something that you know when we first started and the these baits first came out there really wasn't the right gear for them the baits came out and then we just then we developed gear to throw them not the other way around so now for me it's all you know eight and a half to, to nine foot rods i don't go a ton longer than that i'm not a super tall guy and uh and i like rods to be real stiff i don't like a lot of tipping rods so I, i'm more of a I'm, I mostly throw it on a 3x either custom x or now it's the it'll be the 3x chaos tackle rod so those are my my go-tos but i like a real stiff rod so for me when when you're using these baits, it's all pull, pause, retrieve. And I'm, in the summertime, you're really, really ripping them. In the fall, you get to be a little bit slower presentation as the water cools. But when you're really when you're ripping those baits, you want that bait to jump in the water. You want it to drop on you know, drop fairly quickly on a, on a relatively slack line, and you're ripping in that bait, changing direction real quick. You know, as you as you pull that lure along, and you don't want a rod that's going to have a ton of flex in that tip where the where the rod itself is absorbing the action that you're trying to get in that bait and it's not allowing that quick directional change as that bait you know jumps through the water more or less so i'm i'm all about having heavy gear i like to the, the chaos tackle rods are, are what i use in my boat right now for reels, you need stuff that's got real beefy gears that can handle that constant torque of those heavy lures uh the the, the beast the Abu Garcia beast is a, is a really good one i've had very good success with that the 500 tranks is, is another one that really does can hold up it's a little heavy and bulky but it's it's very very well built and i still the number one reel i still use is i got i have 17 Calcutta te's that you know from way back in the day haven't been made in i don't know 12 or 13 years maybe more than that that i still have in my boat and get serviced a couple once or twice a year and seem to hold up better than everything I and mean, yeah, everything in a guide boat breaks eventually but they hold up as well as anything and you know they're a, they're a good medium retreat retrieves reel which everybody's you know, everyone's so, so into the, the high speed, high speed, high speed stuff. And it has a, a definite time and place, but there is a lot of days when you want to get lures down a little bit deeper. One of the great things about rubber is that those medium retrieve reels can, can give you a nice leg up on it. But just the big thing is nice, beefy stuff. Everything nice and heavy it makes your life easier. It'll get better action on the bait. You'll, you'll have a lot more fun doing it. It won't wear you out as much
1: totally agree with that whole concept. Uh, and the T's, I think I got you beat. I think I still have like 26 of them. <laughs> it's one of my all time favorite reels for sure. Yep. Um, it's one of the ones that all the guides poured. <laughs> right. The other thing that it's interesting too, and I think it kind of goes along with the rod selection that you're talking about by having mm-hmm. that little bit more rigid rod, I think there's less fatigue as far as, uh, battling the flex of the rod. So you know, not yeah. only in a figure eight situation, but also like you're talking about working that bait, a little bit more rigid rod is going to provide you more uh, or less fatigue, I should say, not more. Uh, less fatigue. You're not battling the rod. You know, you're able to whip that bait like you're talking about. So, valid points. Yeah. I mean,
6: like I, I said, so the biggest thing for that is to just you, you get that, you want that bait to really jump and then you want that directional change. Anytime, just really when you're throwing any jerk bait, whether it be a rubber jerk bait or not. And, and it just seems like I, I watched guys with a lot of the really flimsy rods and they, they load up good. But at the end of the day, a pounder will load up just about anything. And uh, when, you go to, when you go to rip that rod, you know, that, that, weak, that weaker rod on the pole, it's just there's so much flex in it. It just takes so much of that, of that jump that you want out of the bait. And A lot of times that's the difference between getting those strikes and just that, that quick directional change that, that triggers that feeding response from those
0: fish is so key. All right, so Spencer, if somebody's looking to get in the boat with you this season, how do they go about doing that?
6: Uh, well I run Spencer's Angling Adventures Guide Service. Uh at Spencer's Angling A D V at gmail.com or Spencer's Angling dot com uh, my website. And then uh, my cell phone number is four one nine four one oh four nine eight. Uh yeah, Facebook page or just type it in type it in Spencer Berman into Google, it should come up. I'm not hard to find and uh you know, St Clair's always a always a great destination, always something
1: I'd run to check out and uh you know it's uh definitely worth taking a look at in the muskie community the other side to that spencer too is that you have a whole uh gang over there that you guys work together on so if you are booked you also have options for other guides in the area correct yeah yeah i got i have uh, four or
6: five other guys that i work with pretty closely and uh and and provide trips too that we all kind of work together so yeah we always are, are pretty accommodating um unfortunately that the the busier months definitely sell up a little quicker, so it's always good to get in touch with us uh, earlier, especially if you're not as flexible in your date possibilities. But, no, we do have a pretty good group, so it's always, uh, we normally can accommodate whenever whenever everybody wants to get out.
0: Well, Spencer, we just want to thank you for taking some time out and talking about the pounder on this episode, and hopefully maybe we can catch up on a full episode at some point yet, maybe before you get out fishing. So thanks again. That, and That'd be great. Enjoy your offseason. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right, our next guest is Mike Keys, Keys Outdoors Television. And if you're looking to learn more about Mike and Keys Outdoors, you can look back on a few of our episodes. I think we've had Mike on, oh, I don't know, two other full episodes or so, roughly, something like that. But anyways, Mike, yep. we uh, we certainly appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on this episode, and and we wanted to try to get the uh, the best people that we can talk to or the 11 people or 10 people that are willing to answer the phone. So you were one of the guys that decided to answer the phone for us. So we appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. The, uh, the theme of this episode is one casting lure. That's kind of changed the way you fish, changed your mindset, changed your fish, fish catching, pretty much anything to do with the one lure. So I'll let you go ahead and talk about one musky lure that's done that for you.
7: Yeah, I would have to say that for me. And I would like to do more of it, and the reason why I don't do more of it is because it makes for really bad television, but it's probably one of the most effective tools that we can have, especially on uh, pressured water. Very clear, clean bodies of water is night fishing. And I would have to say by far that the lure that's really done an awesome job for me at night fishing is the junior cowgirl and the reason why I say the junior I've had a lot of success on the bigger blades the cowgirls as well the junior the reason why I like it is because one it doesn't tear you up as bad but more importantly I've just had I don't know if it's just my cadence with that particular blade but um it seems that I can slow that blade down. And it just seems to me that the cadence that I use seems to get bit more than if I do on a 10 blade or um, even bigger. It's just my luck has come on a junior cowgirl. Preferably at night, my favorite color to use is all black. The reason why I think that black works very well is a a predator's eyes are on top of their head. So they're always speeding up. And even in dark, uh, black is a silhouette color. They, they can distinguish that um, object in the water easier. And I think with the big, bigger blades and the slow rolling it, it just gives a very big profile and a very, um, it pushes a lot of water. And um, it, uh, again, is easy for the musky to find.
1: That's uh, definitely a go-to bait. There's no doubt about it, Mike. I mean, uh, when it comes to night fishing, I think we proved it years ago. I mean, both the cowgirl and the junior, a lot of night uh, TV shows that you did and videos and everything else. I mean, it's obviously a really good key. One of the things that I guess we could talk about is, you know, the presentation that you're using and choosing to use after dark, I'm guessing you're slowing things down, but you know, it's amazing. There's times when a little bit of speed doesn't hurt you in the dark either.
7: Yeah, correct. You know, to be honest with you, Brad, I have to tip my hat to you because um, it's really you, uh, Greg Thomas, those guys fishing Malax that really pioneered night fishing. Not saying it wasn't done prior to, but I witnessed it because that was just very, very pressured waters in the heyday of Mille Lacs. And uh, to get a lot of those fish to eat, it had to be done under, you know, under the, the premise of darkness. And that's when I learned, and you were the one who, you know, taught me that uh, what you want to do is if you're fishing weeds, you want to slow your retrieve down until you feel that it's just kicking the tops of the weeds. It's making contact with the tops of the weed bed, and, that has been the success. So it's really just finding that rhythm. I prefer at nighttime a, a slower gear ratio, like maybe a 6-3 to 1 gear ratio just to slow things down, but yet still keep it moving to where you've got the the, the fullest widespread of those blades running through the water, pushing the maximum amount of vibration in water.
1: I think there's another key component to that slower reel as well, Mike. And and I think it's really crazy. And we just uh, did another one earlier with Spencer when we were talking about the, the pounder bulldog. And he talked about using a little slower reel. And I think the popularity of these high-speed reels has just gone crazy. I think everybody's just like, man, it's so nice. It's so easy to control the bait. What I'll argue with, when you're slowing down your presentation, it's nice to have that slower reel just so that you can actually feel that your blades are turning. And I think that's important knowing exactly what that bait's doing while you're retrieving it.
7: I agree. I agree. I will with, with Spencer and, you know, I mean, he's probably caught more muskies than I've ever seen, but I do like a high speed reel when I'm throwing rubber for the simple fact that, uh, especially in any type of current is, um, you know how it is you'll feel that slack and and you want to get on that line right away and that's the only advantage i see of a high speed reel throwing rubber but blades again on a slower reel you can you can feel when those blades engage and you can tell exactly what that lure is doing absolutely mike
1: so why don't we talk about uh your preferred rod that you would like to use while you're throwing a junior
7: I like, to be honest with you, a medium-heavy um, rod on that, leaning a little more on the heavy side. But a medium-heavy to a heavy rod, again, I like the 9-foot rod. And just because you can get a better cast out there, and again, um, I, I think just the, sen- the sensitivity of that 9-foot rod seems to work better for me. But a medium-heavy to uh, a heavy rod – seems to be worked the best for me for night fishing
1: absolutely and that nine foot helps you in that figure eight as well gets the bait a little bit further away from the boat and maybe a little bit deeper tight to the boat so i couldn't agree more
7: exactly and and i tell people that too that you know a lot of the rod length has to do with your height you know a guy like me who's uh you know not gifted when it comes to height you know, an eight six rod to a nine foot is more than enough rod. But a guy like Brian Schaefer who I fish with, he's what, six three, six four, taller in the boat, you know, a ten foot rod, a nine foot would be the least that he uses. So again, yes, getting separation from the boat, longer cast with the with the rods is definitely something to be considered, especially when it comes to blades and, and rubber.
1: So you mentioned fishing in the weeds Is there other locations or techniques that you use after dark throwing a a junior cowgirl?
7: Yeah, a lot of times if we're working like uh, rock bars where there is no weeds um, and it's just rock, again, a lot of it has to do with, you know, if if I were to roll up on a rock bar prior to me fishing it and, and not knowing, you know, what does it max out at, you know, is it the top? max out on it is two feet is it one foot is it three foot those are things that i like to do prior to night fishing so towards the evening to move on there and see how everything lays out um and then i even when they, when it's light out i will throw out if i know i'm going to fish that night i'll make a couple casts and i'll see how slow like get by without getting snagged up and caught up on rocks and it's just good to have that daytime visual before you do it at night and a lot of times when we're setting up to do night fishing, you know, we don't go out there right at dark. We'll go out there prior to, we'll get that last light bite in. But again, a lot of it is, is how slow can I creep this thing over the structure that we're going to fish without uh, getting it all weeded up or snagged up in the rock.
0: So Mike, let's let's circle back a little bit to color. The one thing you said was you like to use black at night. Does anything change up if you have a... A full moon or, you know, like watercolor, do you, do any of those things factor in or are you pretty much going to basically start with black and you're going to live or die by going black?
7: I'm going to live and die by going black. I played that color game, and I get it. I mean, I get when there's a full moon. You know, some people are saying that when there's no, and I've heard it goes both ways from, from some really good fishermen. I've heard some people say that when there's no moon and it's pitch dark, they like to throw color. And then I heard that when there's moon out and there is some type of light that they like to go black. For me, black has just always been an easy guess. I've had a lot of success on it. It's probably whether I'm throwing rubber, whether I'm throwing blades, whether I'm throwing top water. black just seems to be a really, really good color. And Over the years, black and white, if you have an all white lure, you do really good on it during daylight hours. And if you have a black one, you do very good towards low light and evening, murky water and clear water. So, you know, I think it's preference, guys. I I think that nothing really beats just having a lure in the water. You know what I mean? And the color thing is, um, again, I have tried to figure out, you know, which, which ones do better. And it seems that over the years, uh, black has just always stood out, regardless of if we have moonlight or we don't have moonlight. Black just seems to be a very neutral, good to go no matter where. I mean, I just got done filming in Virginia, and that will make 14 states now that I've caught muskies in. You know, you hear the old thing, a muskie is a muskie. Is a muskie, it's the truth. And I think that uh, these tactics that work in the Midwest um, and these color schemes that we use will work anywhere. Um, And that's just from my, you know, from my experience on it. So I'm just, uh, I like black no matter what. I've just done better with it. I've tried the color game and seems that black just gets a bit more for me than any other color, especially at night.
0: All right, Mike, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to talk uh, junior cowgirl with us. I heard there's some news about a new way for people to get the availability to watch your TV show. And want to talk a little bit about that?
7: Yeah, what we've done at uh, Keys Outdoors is we launched our own network. And if you have a Roku device, a Roku smart TV in your home, or a Roku um, device that you can buy for any smart TV, and you can get Roku, you can just type in KOTV. And you can download our app and you can watch Keys Outdoors 24-7, 365 days a year for free. And we also have expanded it to a upper Midwest outdoor fishing channel. So we have other companies, other shows along on that network with us as well. Uh, Shows like uh, uh, Lindard's Angling Edge. We have Jason Mitchell Outdoors aboard with us. We have the Sportsman's Journal that came aboard with us. We have Fish Addictions. So we've got a really good uh, John Gillespie we have with us. So we have a lot of the shows that are airing on Fox Sports North that are also now on KOTV. And again, it's a free app. You can watch 24 7. We have live feed, or you can break it down. And if you want to, Just uh, binge watch on Keys Outdoors or on John Gillespie or any of the other shows that I mentioned. You can go there and watch uh, two years of episodes that are placed on that network. And again, it's free. And uh, we did it because a lot of people that were getting Keys Outdoors on Fox Sports North are no longer getting it because uh, Fox Sports did not sign with uh, Roku and they did not sign with YouTube Live. And they did not sign with Dish Channel, and this will more than than make up for that. So we wanted to one reach out to our viewers to make sure that everybody who wants to watch our show has the ability to do so for free.
1: Well, I've had the ability, Mike, to actually take a quick peek at it, and it looks really, really nice. And I think that's going to be a great option for a ton of viewers out there. I think so too, Brad. And and uh, again. Yes, you can watch
7: Keys Outdoors on YouTube. The problem with YouTube is many. One is when you watch any show, if I want to watch Al Lindert, I have to go to his channel. If I want to watch Keys Outdoors, I have to go to my channel. It's all these shows that are in one location, all Upper Midwest fishing shows, and we have some hunting shows on there as well, but more importantly it's TV. It's not like you're watching YouTube and then all of a sudden those stupid banners come up and they want to try and sell you hair gel. And then you've got to click out of it to, you know, really get the experience of watching like you're watching TV on our app. It's, it's a hundred percent. The only ads that are in there are the ads that are in our show. And otherwise it's old fashioned TV.
0: Yeah. That sounds really awesome. I'm going to have to go check that one out. Hopefully a lot of our listeners have an opportunity to do that too. Would be uh, It's just another great way for, for people to check out Keys Outdoors.
7: Yeah, and a lot of really good fishing shows in the upper Midwest. I mean, them are the big names up here. Evidently, they see the value in it as well. Again, making it just really friendly for the viewer is really what it's all about.
0: Definitely have all the, uh, all the big names on, that you said would be normally on Fox Sports North, and now they have another avenue for people to check that stuff out. So, Mike, yep. we just want to thank you again for coming out for this episode and uh, hope you have a great off-season. I know the show seems to be going well this year, and, you know, like I said, we just want to thank you, and hopefully we'll catch up with you on a full episode before you get out fishing again.
7: Sounds good, guys. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're not doing night fishing, it's something that you probably want to definitely check out. It's very productive.
0: All right, Brad. So we're kind of at the midway point of this episode, and, you know, I lived through – we will call it the cowgirl craze. I lived through the, you know, the bulldog coming up. And I guess sometimes maybe we take these baits for granted and we don't really realize how, uh, I guess revolutionary they were. I mean, obviously you do, you, you were involved in the cowgirl craze from t- top to bottom and everything in between, and you know all about it, but maybe the guy on the outside doesn't realize how much they really, truly changed the game. I mean, based on our first six guests that we've had, it's become very apparent that if you aren't, if you don't have a bulldog or a cowgirl or a junior cowgirl in your tackle box, you're, you're definitely missing the boat. I mean, if, as a, as a beginning musky angler, uh, those should probably be the, uh, the very first two baits that you purchase according to, you know, we'll call them our experts right now.
1: Yeah. It's always interesting, Jeff. I I think, you know, the neat thing about let's see, Carrie and I have been in business 15 years. We're coming up on 16 this July. So, you know, you think about that and that's, that's when we created the business. I mean, we were playing with it for two or three years before that. So, you know, as far as all of the mayhem line, I mean, that's where it started. And think about this though, Brad Rue with Muskie Innovations on the Bulldog side of things, man, I want to say he was in business for 10 years before we even really got rolling. And I think, he had a little bit slower success as far as people really gravitating to his baits. But once it started rolling, man, he's, he's definitely dominated. That's for sure. So both are effective and it's kind of cool. I got to, you know, I used a lot of bulldogs before we even started playing with the, the tackle that we were starting to make. So it's always been in the box. It's definitely a tool that every angler should have in their boat. And it spawned a lot of different ideas. I think, both companies, both Mayhem and Innovations, we've created a business platform for many, many other people, if you will.
0: Well, I think the one thing that Brad Rue had to break down, in my opinion, would be he needed to break down the mental barrier of people throwing rubber baits for big toothy muskies. You know, like that's one of those things where I think he just had to, the the proof needed to be there for people to be like, yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm going to buy in on that because I mean, obviously, you know, big toothy fish, it, those baits are fairly disposable.
1: Yeah, you're right. And then as the size increased, right? I mean, that was another whole thing that people were like, whoa, you know, okay, I can maybe throw a mag dog. But the other thing to keep in mind with both companies actually was equipment changes made uh, a big difference in the purchase of those baits as well. You know, not only rods, but also reels. And it definitely... uh it took some time to for the rest of the industry to catch back up as well.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm, uh, I'm anxious to see now how this goes with the remaining guests that we have. Uh, we have quite the lineup yet to remain, and we thank everybody that's made it through, the, you know, essentially the halfway point of this episode. And hopefully, uh, hopefully the rest of this episode doesn't disappoint. But, uh, Brad, I think we should probably get Jeremy on the phone and continue on with episode 100.
1: That sounds like a plan
0: continuing on with episode 100 on this portion we have jeremy smith linder media productions and for anybody that wants to know a little bit more about jeremy we had him on episode 84 so you could go back hard to believe it's already been 16 episodes since we had him on and uh, you can get you know learn a little bit more about jeremy definitely get some more in-depth musky knowledge out of that but jeremy thank you very much for taking some time out to join us for this episode how are you doing today
8: I'm doing great, and thank you for having me, and congratulations on a 100 episodes. Man, there's a lot of good, good content uh, in that stuff.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate that. I mean, it's uh, it's been a long journey, quite honestly, when we started. I didn't know that we'd ever make it to episode 100, but uh, here we are, and and we couldn't be more happy about it. And it's um, a testament to the guests that we have on as well. I mean, you know, Brad and I go through the work and, and put it out every week, but we need to continue to find guys that are willing to come on every week to share their knowledge about the sport. And so that's why we're so thankful every week that we get a new guest is because, I mean, quite, you know, you guys are all busy and we understand that, uh, things, you know, take time, families, jobs, fishing, everything takes time. So that's why we, you know, definitely thank everybody for coming out and, and talking fishing with us.
8: Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's great. So this is a good time of year to talk about fishing because everybody's cooped up and really wants to get out in the boat again, right?
0: Oh yeah. hundred percent, especially with the way the last week has gone, you know, it's making us. I'd say long for warm weather more so than uh, <laughs> than we ever have before, probably. Although, I don't think any of us in the Midwest can complain about what kind of winter we've had. It's been fairly mild, to say the least, up until this point.
8: Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: So, Jeremy, the question I guess I would pose for this episode is, we're looking at one casting bait, I'd say, that has changed the way you musky fish or changed your outlook or changed your fish catch, however you would like to approach it. So, why don't you talk about the one bait, one casting bait that's, uh, that's done that for you.
8: Yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, every lure, obviously your tackle box is a tool to, to do certain things, but, um, you know, I spend a lot of time fishing for everything. I, I love musky fishing. If I've got a chance, It's my favorite thing to do, but, um, to give a little background on the lure, I'm going to talk about a suspending jerk bait is, uh, this is one of the most effective tools to catch fish in cold water, whether it's largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, walleye northern pike even crappie i shot a panfish show this uh this spring with the size four x trap in the water in the mid-40s when a jig and a plastic won't catch fish a jig and a minnow won't catch fish and you see, see the same thing with smallmouth bass it, there's there's a time frame when the water's cold when i i've just seen so many different fish gravitate towards this this particular bait you know obviously where we're at in minnesota here we can't fish Muskies in the spring when the water is that cold, but in the fall, I found it to be very effective as well. And it's not—shouldn't say it's just fall. It's also times when the bite is is tough in summer. So a couple of the baits that I really rely on are, are one the Xtrap thirty and the Xtrap forty, the the deep diving baits, and then of course the Triple D is another bait that I've had tremendous success with. So you know, uh, when you when you look, I'm not taking anything away. And guys catch there's guys that catch way more big muskies than i do but um you know when you look at soft plastics for example it's a the bait is always is always moving right so there's not a lot of baits that you can get down like with a with extra 40 where you can cast it you can crank it down a little bit get that bait in that 8 to 12 foot range twitch twitch pause you can make the bait dart sideways sideways up down and then it just hangs it just sits there and when it's just sitting there in that cold water it's amazing how many times it's just hanging And all of a sudden your line just straightens out so I found that bait to be one of the best tools for catching fish in, in really cold water conditions. But also, you know, I grew up fishing Leech Lake, and and I fished those baits, a, like the Triple D in particular, a lot when it came out. And at that time, we were we were grinding them on the rocks, and then uh, and then pausing them. So drive down, bang, bang, bang on the rocks, to pause it. And it was one of those baits when fish weren't moving on bucktails, they weren't moving on topwaters. You couldn't really get them to move on a on a glider, but. You know, making contact with cover and letting the bait hang there was just, uh, it, was, it was a magical, magical deal. So, you know, anytime I hit the water, basically for anything that swims, I really like having that suspending dirt bait in the boat because it's just got so many triggering characteristics. It's got direct directional changes. And, uh, of course, that hang time, that's it, really important.
0: I definitely love that choice. It's, uh, it's odd because the triple D... I'll use that one for example. I'm more familiar with it than the X-Raps, but the triple D was so I would say it was popular like 15 years ago. And then it, it, I would say it kind of flattened out or died or died out a little bit. And guys are, I think, look at it now and they think of it as a deep diving crankbait for trolling. They don't really look at it as the casting application, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, where this bait shines for you the most.
8: Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, a lot of guys, when I, I mentioned that I love, love fishing the triple D, they're like, oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite trolling baits, and I never troll it. I, I just cast it. But one thing I want to mention about the baits, too, coming back to the X-Rap is the, the feathered treble on the back of an X-Rap. I don't care if it's a size 4 or a size 6, a size 8 or a size 10. When the water is cold, almost 90% of the fish you catch will be on that back feather. So with the triple D and with the, with the X-Rap, you know, the big X-Raps, the 30s and 40s, I also make sure to add a feathered treble on the back of those. And the last time I muskie fished this year, we caught five of them, and all five fish were caught on the back here. And I, I just can't tell you how many times when I fish clear water, you're making that bait dart, 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 dart and it's hanging there, and you see a muskie come up to it, and everybody knows how like, they'll kind of breathe on a bait when they're not quite into it, but they'll breathe that back feather in and you go, ha, gotcha. It, it, it's just crazy how effective that little feather can be when fish are fish are inactive. But you know, I, I really rely on this bait. It's a it's a lot of work. It's not a you don't work the bait where you cast it out and you pull and pause. It's it's a snap it's a slack line presentation. So you're snapping your rod, you're throwing slack in the bait, almost like you would a would a glider and you're making the the bait dart really erratically to get those triggers you know, in, into the presentation. So I'm using this, like I said, primarily in cold water, but if I've got a tough, really tough bite going on in July and August when fish are on the rocks, it's another great, you know, whether I'm fishing in Canada or I'm fishing leech, or you can even fish this thing in in sparser weed beds. When you can make contact with cover with that bait too, it's also a really, really good application.
0: Yeah, I think that's great that you talked about that bait with the uh, making contact with the rocks. That's one of the techniques I used to use on, with the triple D was a lot was I would fish shallow rocks and literally just bang, just bang it right off the rocks. I would literally just crank it through, rip it through, you know, work it like you said pretty aggressively, and it would just smash on the front of those rocks. And you know, a lot of those crankbaits they can't handle that type of abuse, but the triple D seems to handle it
8: just fine. It does, yeah. And it's not re- it's not as snaggy as you would, you would think either. So it does a really good job of of uh, you know even if you're fishing broken rock shield water, it seems to do a really good job of uh, of darting now the other thing with that bait is you know i've been a big proponent of different leader styles for you know depending on what you're doing so this isn't a bait that i go out and fish 100 pound i don't personally don't 100 pound line with 130 pound fluorocarbon leader i'm usually fishing it on 65 pound line with 124 pound single strand wire no swivel on it so just to this map where you could wire directly your bait or split ring or with like 50 pound titanium. So it really performs a lot better with the
1: single strand wire, in my opinion, than it does with any other any other leader. I think that's pretty typical of a lot of those types of baits where you're actually doing that ripping motion, whether it's a dive and rise, even like with my soft plastics a lot of times. I know tons of people that like fluorocarbon with their soft plastics, but I still go back to the wire, Jeremy.
8: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like, for me, the wire, was, it was like this phase that, you know, everybody started well, at and I started, you fished with wire and then fluorocarbon came onto the scene. And heavy mono was like, everything switched to that. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, let's come back around to uh, come back around to, to wire. So, you know, for leaders, for me, I'm, I'll, I'll fish 30 pound titanium in a lot of situations with it with an all bright so I can make something really smooth and you know, the smooth transition that I will fish a lot of 124 pound single strand and then in, in situations, fish fluorocarbon. but I find myself fishing single strand stainless
1: or single strand titanium a lot of the time. So one of the interesting points that you made here too, is the cold water scenario. And I think for whatever reason, you know, like a twitch bait or a ripping bait, like you're talking about here, it's really truly overlooked. And I'm not exactly sure why I can honestly say, you know, when you get into that cold water time frame, mid uh, October, into November, you know, everybody's just geared to throw rubber. And Yep. I've learned so much over the years, you know, with just being able to run like a dive and rise or a twitch bait like you're talking about. And it's about where the fish are in the water column. Would you agree with some of that? It, it totally is, yeah. So, you know,
8: one of the one of the things with it is obviously you can achieve depth with uh with a with a piece of rubber, right? You can count it down to a certain depth. But again, the bait it's it's still making some type of a vertical motion for the most part. If you pause it, it's falling when you rip it it's it's lifting right so i mean that it's different than a bait that just sits so with a with an x-rap 40 for example i can cast it out turn the reel down you know three times it's got a steep dive curve boom my bait's at 12 feet and now i can just walk the dog basically 12 feet down and fish don't see baits that deep walking the dog right that's just a you know most gliders you're in the you're really near the near the surface with those baits so having something that can that can walk the dog and be really erratic and just hang, just sit there, not move, not move for one, two, three, four seconds when the water's cold can be a really, really big deal.
0: Well, and especially with that triple D, that thing's pretty much neutrally buoyant. So when you get it down to there, it's going to hang, you know, pretty good. I'm assuming the X-Rap 30s and 40s do something similar. I'm not familiar with them as far as musky tools. If I'm going to do what you're doing, I'm talking to triple D. But I'm very familiar with them with smallmouth bass. Like you said, in the spring, I have a lake near us that uh, it's open year round for smallmouth. So if I do have time, which lately I haven't, but, you know, in March and April, it can be a really great smallmouth bite. And that's pretty much what you're throwing the entire time is X-Raps.
8: Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you have any bass tournaments in the south and clear water in the spring, they're all going to be one-on suspending jerk bait. So it's a it's a tool that, uh, you know, bass fish have been relying on heavily that. You know, musky fishermen, we just don't seem to fish suspending jerk baits as often as you see uh, bass guys doing. You know, a lot of the key is you're talking about the triple D being very neutrally buoyant, which it is. But some baits, depending on what you get, you know, they can be a little they can be a little more buoyant or they can sink. So it's worth looking at what you've got, adjusting the, the size of the hook that you've got on the bait, or even adding a little bell sinker, something like that, to get it to hang because that's really the the secret. And if you talk to any bass guys about the, the, the guys that are hardcore about the spinning jerk baits. It's not a bait that slowly rises. It's not a bait that slowly sinks. It's a bait that sits. When you stop it, it sits. It doesn't move. And that's really, uh, that's really the key in those, both of those baits. The triple D and those saltwater X-Raps are uh, remarkable. They just they just sit there.
0: So one question I have for you on this bait is, this is the deeper diving one, the triple D. Have you had any experience with uh, the double D doing something similar?
8: Yeah, I've I've used the double D a, a fair bit too, and you know it seems like you can get a little more action out of the out of the the double D. It seems to from I guess what I've seen you can you can turn the bait a little more. I just prefer the triple D if I want to keep the bait higher in the water. If I was just going to buy one, I would take the triple D just because if I keep my rod angle higher and I don't crank down right away, I can still get that triple D to to be really wild near the near the top of the water. But then if I want to achieve depth. I can still do that with the with the triple D. So between the two, I like the triple better
9: than the double.
0: As far as equipment to work, you know, this suspending jerk bait, jerk bait technique, what type of rod are you using?
9: So uh, a couple couple
8: rods that I that I like using, um, St. Croix Downsizer Six. Um, I like their I, I believe it's the seven seven ten or seven eleven that they have got with that. Or uh, you know, like a, a fish the Legend Elite, so lot the eight six medium heavy fast. So those tips are seem to be really good for it. So I like something that's got a, that's, it's got a softer tip and it's got a lot of flex in the midsection. So when, a, you know, you're skin hooking a lot of those fish so you don't, if, you, if you're fishing an extra heavy rod, you're not able to impart the action into the bait. And if you're fishing and, and, and also when you do look to fish, you really want, you know, the, the system to stretch. You want everything to, to just, to, to bend right, so we're fishing braid to get the bait deeper. You want your rod to to fold over because a lot of times you're skin hooking these fish. So many of the fish that I catch on that get caught on that back trouble I mean, you're just barely skin hooking them on the lip. So you want
1: a nice, nice, uh, nice flex in the midsection and a and a fast fast tip on it. I'm assuming the the reason for the lighter weight line is to get some extra depth as well, right, Jeremy? Yep, exactly, exactly. Yep. So I mean, you could get away with.
8: 50, and you know what, it's funny when we muskie fish, I you just just everything, but obviously last year I didn't, but I spent a lot of time in the far north pike fishing as well, and it's funny when I go up pike fishing, a lot of those pike up there are the size of muskies, but there I'm fishing 30 and 40 pound line all the time, but of course I go to muskie fishing, I'm fishing 65, so I'm sure you could get away with, with 30, I just don't have any in my 30 pound braid, but I just don't have any muskie setups with that stuff. So.
1: Yeah. I hear you. I, I got a funny story. You know, you're talking about neutral buoyant uh, baits and whatever, but back 15, 17 years ago, I would walk in the Thorn brothers and I would, uh, I would grab a, a musky buster AP or the appealer. And I would literally take like a handful of them and I'd go into their bathroom, pull the lid off the toilet on the back and drop them all in there and see which one sunk the fastest. That, that's how I chose which bait I wanted to buy that's cool (laughs) yeah right they're not all the same no they're not so especially in that wood line you know when you got a wood bait you definitely want to well in my opinion with a a glide bait like that i I always wanted the heaviest one so that's what i look for yeah
8: you know the the whole wood bait thing it's like to me there's nothing better than the than the, the the perfect wood bait but there's a there's a lot of not perfect wood baits, and when you get one, it's one of your prized possessions.
0: All right, Jeremy. Well, it's uh, great to have you on this episode. We really look forward to, you know, every time we get you on on the podcast, you always bring in some good knowledge to the, to the table. And uh, we just want to thank you for coming out, and hopefully maybe we can catch up for another complete episode sometime in the near future.
8: Well, appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. I'm uh, anxious to hear what the other guys have to say about it, and thanks again.
0: Alright, our esteemed guest today is the legend, Dick Pearson. For anybody that doesn't know, we had, I think it was two episodes with you, Dick, quite a while ago, almost a year ago. And Dick is one of our most asked about guests, and for good reason. Does There's very few musky anglers that have brought more to the table as far as knowledge, history, and everything else that Dick brings to the table when he comes on a podcast. And we're super fortunate to have him. Brad and I had to break our piggy banks in order to get him to come back on. I mean, I think we had to divvy up at least seven dollars, huh, Brad? Had to be somewhere in there. (laughs)
9: I'm still waiting for that, by the way. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well
0: Brad Brad was supposed to PayPal you. I don't know what you'll have to ask Carrie maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm not good on a computer, but Carrie can hook you up.
9: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't want a I don't want a penny, so
0: But anyways, Dick Pearson is our guest today. Dick We really can't thank you enough for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's also a pleasure just to talk, you know, just to text with you once in a while. I know I I get to do that throughout the course of the year now, and uh, I hope everything is going well. And we're we're thankful that you're on our uh, our hundredth episode. We couldn't have a hundredth episode without you on it.
9: Yeah, great. Well, I appreciate it. I'll uh, try to make it interesting. If you want to, I guess you're going to talk about lures.
0: We are the uh, the reason we brought you on this podcast today was because. We've been talking about lures for this 100th episode and we're talking, you know, we talked to a variety of different anglers and all over the, the uh, musky range and we're talking about one lure that's changed the way they fish, changed uh, maybe the course of musky history, changed the technique that they do, just what whatever it would take. And, then we're, and we're only talking about the one bait. So for you, Dick, I'll give you the stage. What bait are we talking about today? Yeah, I guess I'll,
9: uh, I assume I'm that- double pen's been covered or will be covered and I'll I'll talk about an oldie but goody, I'll talk about a sewick. I think if my math is correct and probably isn't, but I think I'm coming up on my fiftieth season or fiftieth anniversary throwing sewic. So they've been very, very good to me and I might be able to shed some light on on, on some different aspects that people might not be familiar with. So I'll I'll pick a sewage.
0: And I certainly think that's an excellent choice. Nobody has to, nobody's talked about a suic and, you know, quite honestly, there's a few baits that are definitely legendary, and a suic would be one of them. So
9: why don't you... Uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 kinda, I, I consider myself a, a loyal suic fan. I've never left them. I, I know there was a period 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago um, where people would look at you cross-eyed if you were throwing suiks because gliders were the rage. And, I've always said, no, I want to catch fish. I don't want to miss them or lose them or whatever. So I, I've i stuck with suic and I've had good luck with them. Um, matter of fact, I, I I think it is the 50th. This will be the 50th season I've thrown them, and the first time I threw them, I had a 9-inch black that I had put. I remember distinctly I had painted uh, yellow bars on the side, so it was kind of a reverse bumblebee, and I went to Lee lake, and, Went over to a point called Five Mile, and that first night, I got two forty-eight inches on that uh, reverse Bumblebee Suiq, and I've been a fan and and a user, hardcore user ever since. So, um, I used. Uh, if you want me to just kind of run with it? I, I'll kind of chat a little bit about it. I, I think I've used. I know I've used every size that they've ever made. I think, except they've got a new really big one. I think it's fourteen inches or bigger. And I haven't torn it yet, but I'll I'll be buying a couple soon and uh they'll be will uh, be going this summer. Hopefully in Canada, but they'll be going somewhere this summer. It might be of interest to people if I try to pick some favorites within the sewage well. I mean I've caught they make that little one, I don't know, they maybe two little ones, um five or sevens or whatever. But I've caught fish years ago. I used to throw those in the spring a lot, the idea being you had to downsize and so on, which probably is nonsense then and now. But I've even thrown those small ones with uh, spinning uh, tackle and caught muskies uh, in the spring. But uh, most of my fish, of course, over the years were on the 9-inch, and they probably were modified in some respect, and I'll that, that category or, or that type of thing was always done by my wife, and, and I'll, I'll try to remember to touch on that. But probably the last, I don't know how long they've made the 10-inch weighted uh, wood. Um, that's been far and away my bait of choice in most instances, you know, for a long time now. Um, I've gone over uh, the last couple of years. I've gotten away from it because, you know, the, the old 10-inch weighted, uh, I'll try to remember to talk about how I use it, but that, uh, that's wood and, and uh, you know, they've got good quality control, but wood is wood and so they're all a little different and they're a little touchier to tune. so the last few years I've used the 10-inch, that high-impact uh, plastic resin or whatever it is, thing they use, and and what I've done with that no matter how I'm using it, almost always uh, I've got a, a bell sinker um, on on the uh, on the split ring up front on the front hook. I add a bell sinker, and I don't know what size it is, but pretty small. They're hard to find now, but I, I've got tackle boxes full. I'm, i always got some whiskers. I use them on lots of lots of lures, and that has given me the the performance of my 10 inch weighted woods uh, with the new high impact, it's you know as close to indestructible as you can as you can get it, and you can you can bang rocks and so on. So, I, so for the most part, I, I'm throwing that the 10 inch uh, high impact one uh, almost always with a bell sinker uh, up on the front. And, and by the way, I mean I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way to uh, to weight it and use it, uh, but I've never been. Number one, very sophisticated number two i I like it because i i believe it also that bell sinker up there banging uh in, you know impart some noise to it or or some attraction to it uh and and uh, so that's what that's what I'm doing as to retrieve um and how I retrieve it. Uh, I'll have to break that down a little bit, but I, I, I should say that over the years I've been blessed to fish with all kinds of people uh, good, bad, um, whatever. Um, I mean, good fishermen, bad fishermen, whatever. And I think I've seen every possible use of suics uh, that you could imagine. You know, the answer is what works best. I don't know. Almost anything works with the things, and that doesn't. Probably resonate is really believable, but I, I've really seen everything. Like Doug Stangy, in fish editor, for the most part, whenever he was fishing with me, he threw sueks often, but he pretty much just reeled them, sometimes very fast, with imparting just very slight twitches with his wrist. Then I've 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 I've, I've got the other extreme, um, where where guys you know take super long pulls unfortunately, leaving a lot of slack in the line, which will probably come back to haunt them eventually. So I get that side of the spectrum, and then i have fishing guys like Mark Wendell, who are, you know, type A pluses, and it's just a rat a tat 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 fast, and, you know, short switches, that wham-wham-wham-wham-wham-wham, all the way to the both And there are times where, I mean, I've seen that, just, there are some days where that, that really triggers them. So I think I've seen everything in the answer is I don't think there's a bad way to do it. For the most part, I just use steady, uh, almost rhythmic uh, short pulls, and I couple that with what I call a dead rise. Dead rise being, uh, unless I'm in weeds, if I'm in dark water, the dead rise, I I, I pause it and let it come to the surface just in sight. In, in sort of off colored water, and then just before it breaks the surface. But sometimes I let it break the surface. I'll you know I'll complete the the, uh, the cast and bring it in and do a figure eight. Figure eight, by the way, are, I don't do a lot of jerking. Um, I just I basically just swim it um, like any other lure. I just I just make my eights or my big circles or whatever. Once in a while, I throw in a twitch if I think fish is on it a long time and not doing anything. I'll try anything at that point. Um, but I, I use a, I use a steady, rhythmic, fairly short, probably, a, oh, maybe 18 inches, two-foot poles. I mean, the bass moving that, that distance and, and just steady and kind of rhythmic. And and then, then I almost always use that dead rise right at the end, because if they're following that, sometimes we'll really do it. Um, if I'm in trout walk, I will use. I will use uh, the dead rise most of the time too, but I'll do it farther out. Again, I it's sort of a I want to dead rise it and see what's going to happen and try to trigger it about as far as I can see. So in dirty water, I guess the reason is it, it's closer because I can't see it. If I if I do it at the, the you know at the half retrieve mark or something, whereas in trout water, I'll I'll do it and you know quite a ways out. But that's it. That's my retrieve. I mean, I vary it a little bit. But the The other basic retrieve is if I'm in heavy weeds. And then, by the way, in heavy weeds, I want to use almost always a 10-inch wood. I want it to be very buoyant. In fact, I don't even want it to be weighted. I will bend the tail down fairly severely so that it, I almost splash it in. I can I can pop it down, and it's going to back out right away. And I don't care sometimes I purposely want it to come back to the surface and splash, and what I do is I've over the years developed a feel, so my line almost always tells me I've got a stock of cabbage coming up or something, and you learn to kind of finesse your way through it. You'll hesitate, you but you'll bump it and then I hesitate, it'll strike eyes, and I'll pull it through. kind of hard to describe, but that's that's the thing in in weeds thick weeds. You can work a ten-inch sewage through the unbelievably thick weeds with uh, patience and and uh, technique. So anyway, that, that's probably enough on retrieves. And you know, if you got any questions, feel free about it. Feel free to ask I me. Mean, the other, the other, I guess the other retriever presentation is trolling. It's the most, in my opinion, one of the most underrated trolling baits. If you put. Um, the week on and troll relatively slow on sandbars, sand beaches, in the six to nine foot depth at night, you will be amazed at what happens. And you're going to get muskies, but you're going to get gigantic walleye too. Um, and uh, I know guys that troll them in, in deep trout water. Now, crazy as that sounds. In fact, I think if I'm not mistaken, my old buddy Doc, Jerry Juergens, I haven't talked talk to Jerry in years. I assume he's alive. I don't think he's fishing. But anyway, he was a doctor. He was one of the original Ink Pioneers. He was a doctor uh, from St. Cloud, and, and I, I fished him quite a bit. I know he trolled him on Whitefish Bay. He trolled Suey. In fact, I think, I know he was the one that uh, with uh, Larry Ramsel's help got uh Len Hartman, yeah, he, he this Doc Jurgen. I think, I think, as a matter of fact, Larry Ramsey would be the guy to ask about this. But I think that they were trolling with Len Hartman. They took Len up to Lake of the Woods to learn his technique. well, he, they had him on Leach and other places too. But they took him um, before he fell in disfavor. They took him all over, and and I'm, I'm I'm I think they got a trolling fish with Len Hartman trolling a. a, a a, a black sewage on whitefish bay on that trip even so what i'm saying i don't want to get sidelined here but it, it it it's a great trolling bait why these guys i don't fish much in the fall anymore i'm always hunting but why these guys aren't trolling more sewage up and down the shoreline um you know god bless Jake's and and and, all, and you know all the new baits out there but but you know i just shudder to think what would happen if they if they trolled uh you know Big it if you got those the new ones. Those, those great big fourteen inches or bigger. I mean, I think people would be amazed. And and you don't have to sit there and jerk them all day. Uh, I mean, they, you can you can bend the tail one way or another, and you can get side to side if you want it. I don't. We'll try to touch on that later too. But but just occasional twitches or jerks, or you know, some sort of variation in in the in the movement of that bait. They'll be they'd be amazed. I mean, I, I no one's doing it anymore. At I least, mean, not that I am aware. I, I have friends that are throwing them at night, still doing it on the sandbars and stuff. And uh, but anyway, that's a, that's a presentation that souix really aren't known for, and they 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 should be used in that fashion more often. So I I mentioned trying to get some side to side. Maybe that's maybe it's time to talk about trying to tune them a little bit. I I know that bothers a lot of people. How to tune them. And uh, it really shouldn't. It just takes a little experimentation. That's all. I mean, I, I used to bend both. I used to make it sort of a V. I'd bend, bend both sides of the tail down. I, I don't do that much anymore. That's your work. I just bend it down by feel and by touch and then make a few casts. See, see what you want. You can get it to do what you want it to do. With just a few casts, it's it's not a difficult thing, and it's even easier with the uh, with the consistency of these new high impact uh, ones. But but you know, some guys bend one side. That you know, I don't know if Doug Johnson, my friend Doug, still does that or not. But he used to bend uh, one side or, or at least one side more because he wanted side to side action. I think he likes them to turn and then pause, turn it's sort of a half moon thing and then pause. I don't. I, I I eliminate as much side to side. It's pretty to have them dance and do side to side, but that's when that's when I miss them. If, that, if it's possible to miss them, I'll miss them. So I just want them to go the boring, plum, 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 you know, just straight in. Jerk them, let them back up. Jerk them, let them back up. Jerk them, let them back up. I don't want side to side. But you can do really almost anything with the tail you know, just experiment. Uh, it, it, there's there's nothing magical about it. It just takes a little experience and a few casts and you can adjust it anytime, you know, no problem. Now, if you're going to, you're going to play around with modifying that, that's a little different. Like my wife, uh, she, she has got to modify everything, but she can make nasty bobbies and nasty sewage really simple. And, uh, I don't see it. I don't see people doing it anymore. But like it, like we're talking to it, so so in the middle, near the back end of the tail, she'll take and drill just a tiny hole, enough to get a uh, uh, a, a swivel and a snap in there. And she, she might use uh, light wire. She might even use mono, but usually just a just a little section of a, a snap and a swivel. And then she'll put you know, might she'll put a little spinner on it. And the little spinner works great. Every pull, it's flashing and pulsating. Um, but really, Lisa, she'll she'll add like a two-inch rubber rubber ducky on a rubber worm. And so on your pauses and everything, you still got that movement back there. And there's there's no doubt that it, I think at times it really it really does make a difference. I hate to admit that, but but I think it does. And and it, it sure looks nice. And I know it doesn't hurt anything. So, And then you can do anything you want with weights. I mean, I don't know what's out there now on these weight kits, but you can, you know, I've got, I've, <laughs> I'm i sure out in the, I've got hundreds of old beat-up sewage in out in my shed. I mean, I'm sure hundreds, literally. I've got them to where they'll, I mean, you put them in the water, they'll sink, they're so weighted. And there isn't much that I, either I or my wife hasn't tried with weights, but uh, again, you know, the 10-inch weighted woods now that you can buy, you don't have to do a thing to them. Ditto on the uh, the high impact. If, if if you don't want them to go deeper or to perform a little slower, uh, you don't need to do a thing. But like I said, on those, I'll just just slide on one of those bell Um and you can obviously change sizes there too. So anyway, that's about it for the, the spinners and the rubber duckies on the back and the weights. But the only modifications now, I should mention that. Uh, a lot of people will remove the rear hook and I've done it. I would probably still do it if I was, if I was fishing where, uh, where there's little or no chance of big fish, you know, I I'd probably get rid of that hook because it is sewage. You can, you can hurt fish with sewage, no doubt about it. There's no sense ducking that issue, but I, I don't, I mean, it's been years since I have ever removed the rear hook. Now, um, I fish alone a lot, and suics can be dangerous to fish, but they also can be notoriously dangerous to you if you're alone and you're releasing them alone. And just take my word for it. I've been hooked to suics a number of times, and on at least two occasions, it resulted in a dead muskie that should not have been dead. So I understand people you know, preaching that you should remove that rear hook because it's usually the rear hook that'll wrap around and and get a fish's eye or it'll wrap around and get my hand, that's for sure. But my solution to that is, and particularly if I'm fishing alone, if I'm fishing alone, I might pinch the barb on all three of those hooks. But I certainly, I certainly am going to pinch down the barb on the the rear hook uh, if I'm alone. Um, Always, always. so I don't want to. I don't want to. Again, I don't want to preach about that, but uh, that's what I do. So I don't know. I mean, I went. Maybe I went uh, awfully fast here and uh, and left left a lot unsaid. But you know, it's just a it's such. It's just a great base, and I, I. It really is coming back in vogue. man. I see. I see tons of people throwing them now, as as, as I believe they should be. And if you're not throwing it, I think you should certainly try it. That's kind, of, that's kind of in a nutshell what, I, what I'm doing. You guys got questions for me, let's, let's talk about it. I'd probably, as usual, ramble too much. But if you've got, you know, you, you got a scenario or something, I'd tell you what i do or I, whatever.
0: Um, well, I'm thinking that one thing people might want to know about would be uh, like trolling them. I mean, it's definitely not a, a technique that I would say is real common, <laughs> especially when mentioned with a SUIC. Let's just talk about like line length letting out. Are you letting out quite a bit of line and then are you jerk jerk trolling this?
9: I am jerk trolling it. If if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do it for any length of I, I do it on normally I would do it on, on smaller spots. Let I me mean, I'll go back to the give some examples here of when I first started doing it. First time I ever trolled them, I guess would have been on leech lake. And if if people are familiar with leech, there's sandbars you know, all over. Um, but the ones that I started doing would have been, oh, those like on the uh, the Walker Bay entrance stage and see narrows and the sandbars along there and, and jutting out into the main lake. Those kind of places is where I would do it. And we, I kind of stumbled onto it by, by accident. I had one on and I decided I was on the way in. I remember that. I had one on, I was on the way in, came roaring through from Trader's Bay into through that Agency Narrows, heading for town, and it was it was dark. I'm sure, as usual, most of my lights didn't work. But anyway, I, I decided I'm going to stop and I'm going to troll one of those sandbars. And I don't—I had a on I said, "You know what? I'm going to try that." And unfortunately, uh, uh, I, I got a decent muskie. I was mid forty-inch type on that on the first fifty yards of trolling. And then I thought, well, I'm into something. And so I know it was the next night. We went and we just trolled shoreline and, 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 and walked bay and all the sandbars, And I know we got one or two muskies. There was two of us. We got one or two muskies in a couple hours. And we got a bunch of really, really nice wallets. I'm talking, you know, the 20 to, not monsters, but 20 to 26-inch wallets. And they just <laughs> destroyed sewage at night. When they're up shallow, I mean you put you, you put a sewage anywhere near a walleye, if he's up shallow, you're you're gonna you're gonna get blasted and you know how they hit too. Boy, it's just so that's how I started and, and you know, I've done it now, um but again it really works well at night. I've done it now on weed line and yes, you're gonna you're gonna fall out once in a while, but what bait aren't you gonna fall out once in a while? And say maybe you try to you'll come across a little point in the weed, well, good chance you're going to get hit but i mean it's just an awesome bait and, and like on lead lines i'd have short line i throw two-thirds of the cast out behind the way i'd go i want better you know in out control i want so the shorter line and then no magic i'm just i'm, I'm going at a, a slow to moderate speed and i'm i'm probably i'm probably going the speed of a normal retrieve casting and and i'm you know if it's a long run i'll have it um, most of the time back then, I would would have been with a filler and I'd have the rod, you know, kind of between my legs, and I'm just really turning in my seat excuse be a party the action to it. But uh, you know, now nowadays I'm, I'm, I'm running the wheel, and I'm just doing my normal thing. Not near as many uh, pulls as I would on a cast, but uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm maybe going what six, eight, nine feet, something like that per pull, and not fast, although. I have a friend. I don't know if he's still doing, it, but boy, on reefs, he he got in the habit of really going fast and triggering them. Um, so you, I mean, there's a lot of uses for it. You can go around reefs, or I can go right over the top of reefs if they're up on it. But but by and large, my experience doing it, the most success has been Don dusk or or after dark. And people are I don't I don't I don't think people are doing it very much. But it'll work. It'll work for them if they do it. And like I say, uh, I wish I had done more of it in the fall shoreline thing because, yeah, it's a lot easier to sit there with a, you know, with a, uh, you know, with a trolling, or a standard trolling bait, uh, crank bait, and, and so on. It's a lot easier. But I'll tell you what, I'm sure you're going over fish and, and, and the more pressure it is, the more likely you're going over some. And there aren't many fish that if you're going at a slow, to moderate speed, there aren't, in my opinion, there aren't many big muskies that aren't going to take a big suick um, that's going right over Just I mean, that's just not been my experience. They're going to take it. So I don't know if that answered it, Jeff or not. But that's that's what I do. And again, I don't do much of it anymore because I don't fish. I, I don't fish after dark uh, much anymore. Period.
0: Sure, and then when you're doing when you're running this pattern are you putting additional yep. weight on these SUICs or running them pretty much no nope, no nope,
9: no nope. I'm, I'm i'm running them pretty much as a matter of fact you'll be surprised if you've got uh if you got a, say a 10 inch weighted and you've got your long lining now if you you know if you're not running something where you got control i'd be out cast and a half for sure and and maybe more if i'm going if i decide i'm going to go up shallow maybe two casts if you're doing that you'll be amazed you'll all of a sudden, you will say, What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Well, you're hitting the sand. I mean, they'll work themselves down deeper than people think. It's not like you're running a foot below the surface, believe me. You know, you're you're getting down there four or five, six feet or more. And uh, again, depending on speed and the length of line you got out thrown, but but you quickly learn that you're getting a little deeper than you think you are because if you get on if you're on rocks, you find out the hard way. But but if you're on sand you'll feel it i mean you're getting down you're getting down so you can you know i wouldn't be a bit afraid well look at that one i mean those guys are they're trolling around the east or sometimes out over open water with uh sewage you know the old nine inches is when they caught a bunch of those in white so that's uh that tells you about maybe we should have talked about that in, in, in my first talk but uh Anyway, give it some, I hope people give that a try. Uh, it's a suick to be happy because you know they'll, you'll hurt more suic. So, uh, but no, I, I think it's I think it's a I think it's a tactic that's underused. So I'll leave
1: it at that. I would I would totally agree with you, Dick. And and the neat thing about the suic, it it truly is a staple in the industry. There's no wrong way to work it, right? I mean, you yeah, touched yeah. on all of those different topics, and. Yeah. I, what more can you say? I mean, if you really, really boil it down, the SUIC has been been one of the most outstanding baits in the industry. It truly has, and it's lived through all of the history. That what? Yeah, we talked know, about it, it, it before we started. Sixty, seventy years? I don't know what what the history. is. Yeah, I I think it's at least. God, I don't know.
9: I I I, I think it's at least seventy years they've been around. So, I mean, it, it's obviously proven, and like I said, there was a period of time where I just took a lot of grief over it, because there, there, the raids were gliders, and uh, man, that, in my opinion, that that was and is a mistake, if you want to catch them, but anyway, so yeah, it's a, it's a classic, it's been around forever, uh, like I said, I think it's my 50th anniversary coming up, I envision throwing two weeks until I tip over, so... Anyway, I hope I hope that gave some guys some ideas, or some thoughts, and um, you know, if you think we've
1: got anything else, shoot away. Otherwise, uh, I'll uh, I'll shut up. Well, I, I never want to hear you shut up, Dick, because uh, <laughs> every every time you start talking, I'm all ears. I guess you know, ultimately, I don't know what we can add to this whole little piece of the segment, but. Honestly, I can't thank you enough, and I know Jeff feels the exact same way. I totally appreciate your time, and um, yeah, okay, what, sure. What you have, what you have to offer, Dick, is uh, it's amazing, and I can't say enough.
9: All right, well, thanks, guys. I uh, hope it generates some interest, and uh, I'll uh, I'll talk to you down the road.
0: Yes, sir, Dick. We really appreciate you taking time out and and talking to us. I hope that we can work something out. I know from our last one, I still have some notes. We wanted to talk about some wind stuff and wind currents and all that stuff. And I'm hoping that you can find some time yet this late, late winter spring before you get out fishing and uh, you can come on and talk to us about that.
9: Yeah. I'll be glad to do it. So, uh, you know, let's, let's touch base in a few weeks. I appreciate it, Dick. All right. See ya. Yep. Thanks again. Yeah. Bye.
0: All right, our next segment is Jeff Van Remortal. Jeff's uh primarily up in the northern Wisconsin area. Jeff, you got a tough act to follow. We just had talked to Dick Pearson before we talked to you. So uh you got your work cut out for you. Following a uh we'll call him a, a living legend is what I I would probably call him. So Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it.
10: Yeah, I uh, feel honored to be in the same lineup as a guy
0: like that and the rest of the guys on the crew here. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm only in this lineup because you know, it's our show. So <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason I'm around. Nobody wants to, listen <laughs> <Right>. to <me. laughs> kind of a requirement, kind of a requirement for you to be here. Well somebody's got good. somebody's gotta lead the charge. I mean <laughs> somebody's gotta hurt all the cats, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, Brad and I have had quite the undertaking on this episode. I don't know that uh we anticipated it being you know, quite this much work, but it should it should be fun watching it all come together. You know, what we're doing over here is we're talking about one bait, one casting bait that that's changed things for you. And I know this is probably going to be difficult because I'm sure it was difficult for all of our guests because there's so many of them. And there's, I mean, there's a few that definitely stick out that have changed, I would say, like the course of musky fishing history. So why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, I guess a couple baits maybe or whatever, and then, then pick, uh, then tell us what bait that you're going to choose for your bait that, uh, essentially changed musky fishing for you?
10: Yeah. I mean, like I said, really a tough question. I would say, you know, being a, being heavy into musky fishing and, you know, most of my life or a good portion of it in my adult life anyway, having kind of been there through the last 10, 15 years of this, has done a lot of really good stuff that's come in the market. And I think there's probably not a person out there that would argue we haven't seen a, light speed revolution in the way things work in the fishing world as a whole. And and certainly in the musky fishing world, just in the evolution of the products, the baits, the tackle, the rods, the boats, the electronics and everything that goes with it. So yeah, pretty cool to see that. And really an exciting time to be a musky angler and see all that stuff kind of come to fruition between the tournament circuit and guiding and just getting to know all these guys that I've come to know so well in the, between musky shows and stuff, all the bait makers. I mean, it's like you said, it's a, there's a, a hefty and solid field to choose from. No doubt. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of lures, I'm sure there's been a lot of mention about, you know, like Musky mayhem, double cowgirls. I mean, undeniably a revolution in the sport of musky fishing, no doubt. You know, bulldogs for sure. Some of the first big rubber baits out there doing it and getting it done when, you know, people look at that and think you're crazy to throw something like that until you saw how they ate it. Um, Medusas, you know, suics way back in the day, obviously before my time when that was a new bait, obviously, but there's been a good resurgence in that, even in the past couple of years here. After after people have kind of diversified, especially a lot of the younger anglers that came in, where you know, I guess around my time frame, or maybe even a little after, certainly where you know every article was about you know some sort of big rubber or some sort of big blades, right? It kind of you know there's then there's been a definitely a resurgence, I would say, in that that jerk bait side of things. Suix being one of those time tested lures that's shown out for me over the years for sure. Um, And then you got some of the newer players too that, I mean, they're not quite at that point or where they didn't quite maybe change it. There's just, there's so much good stuff out there, but I'll have to say if I had to choose one lure overall that changed my perspective or changed how I fish, it would probably be the Medusa. Not probably, it would be the Medusa simply because, you know, when those first came out, uh, nobody here was really throwing them. I can't remember who we were down at a tournament in Pewaukee. The first time I had one there, I know Mark Gillich had one and Nate Osvar had one. And then I had one, we had picked one some up at Raleigh Helen's had a couple there. That was about the first time that I really saw it. We saw that bait, you know, take off. And, uh, Matt and I were fishing down there and we, we hooked a bunch of fish. We ended up coming, I think fourth or fifth, we placed in that tournament. I know Rob call got a a big one on, I think he caught it on a pounder, but Medusas were hot in the field in that tournament. And they were, they just kind of showed up at the muskie shop, maybe a month or two prior to that. It was, I don't know, like I said, a number of years ago and uh it was one of those ones kind of added to the box and uh you know we had it was about the end of the season there because right after that that was for the the wmt championship back then and we went then on to duck season obviously right after that it was october and then for me it was right to switch right to duck season and uh that was the first time where we saw it where there's a lot of boats on the water you're fishing in a tournament scenario obviously people had thrown these lures before jason had been throwing them you know the the original creator jason summers had been throwing them um, you know, the the Eagle River PMTT and stuff like that. They'd been around, but that was the first experience I had where we had them. Just kind of heard they were good, picked up a couple there, and, and just were showing Because we still threw, we threw Bulldogs and, you know, double covers. we had all the other stuff there and kind of get that tip. I think maybe it was even either Mark Gillish or Joyer's Rosanthi. One of those guys was the first guy that I knew that owned one. Him and then Lajewski maybe was in that group there. But um, they were the first people I knew that owned them. And, and uh, like I said, we just kind of all had them at the same time down there right when they first showed up at Raleigh's. So, and we were all lighting fish up in that tournament, and know we ended up losing a bunch but um and then I had that in my box, and coming into the following season, I had an incredible opening day on in May. it was opening day, and I ended up landing i had i hooked nine fish and I landed six and i had a a forty nine a forty eight and a half a forty six and a quarter a forty one uh, a forty one a forty one and a half I can't remember exactly, and then uh, another one that was about thirty nine And then one smaller fish and I'd lost one other fish that was in the four foot class. And that was on opening day in Northern Wisconsin. I'd started off with a bulldog. I lost a big fish on a, on a bulldog right off the start on a regular bulldog. Then I caught a small fish after that, about um, 30 inches. So real small. And that fish, um, that fish bit off the tail of that bait. So i up to the next only thing I had in that color. uh, I went to a mag dog uh, in that same color and I caught a 39. And then I lost one other fish that was smaller. And then that bait got destroyed, completely wrecked. Had the harness ripped out of it, just got destroyed in the net. The fish was hooked funny, rolled, ripped the harness right out. It was just completely demolished. And so I switched up to the only other thing I had in that color, which was a Medusa, which I knew was a good bait, but I thought it was maybe a little big because this was long before, or several years before Rick had purchased the company from Jason. And that that bait was, uh, you know, a very large bait. The original, the China Deuces, as they're known by people who had them back in the day, the ones with the insert eyes. And that was lights out for the rest of the day. I ended up pounding the rest of my fish that day on that. And again, opening day, Northern Wisconsin Memorial Day weekend, and just crushing the biggest fish in the system on a Magnum bait. Uh, wasn't, you know, obviously the monster size, which is the, you know, the one pound, one pound plus version or whatever the weight comes out of that. And then they had the China well, they're both China deuces, but then they had the one size smaller, the what was called the original Medusa at the time. And like I said, that was just kind of an eye opener for sure. Just one of those baits. i like, wow, I did not expect that. I mean, I've caught fish on decent sized baits, you know, opening day and that, of course. But that was just, that was like summer peak, mouths open, fish inhaling baits, crazy. And there's obviously some other factors, right? We had good weather, everything lined up. It was an early ice off. so The fish were a little ahead of where they normally would be. It was maybe more akin to fishing something like a, a mid-June or, uh, you know, first, second week of June, you know, a little bit, about 10, 10, to 14 days later than what you would normally associate with an opening day in terms of the spawning cycle and the, where the weed growth was at, et cetera. So that was the first thing. And that was literally the first day I muskie fished after that tournament down on, uh, down on Pewaukee. So that was, and that kind of set the tone for the year. I ended up throwing that bait a ton along with other stuff, caught a bunch of fish on blades that year. And a bunch of fish, and several fish on dogs, and and other stuff. But the Medusa was just one that, like I said, nobody's really throwing. There's only a handful of guys really up here that were working them hard. I think a lot of people thought, you know, this is the same as a bulldog, or what? You know, what's that? And and quite frankly, they're not. They're different baits, and it's something I've delabored in, in seminars and stuff. And I know it's, it's something a lot of anglers, especially really experienced anglers, know that even though you have a bait that may be similar to other baits, there's still a different vibration, there's still a different profile, there's still a different thump, a different feel to that fish, a different profile whether it be visual or something that they feel or a combination thereof that, that makes it notably different to the point where they will eat it kind of with reckless abandon versus something that they might already be conditioned to a little bit. And that was a bait, like I said, and up until even a year or three ago and now with the way that information travels, you know, I I mean, it's it's obviously a bait that's a staple in most people's boxes. and, And at the time, you know, bulldogs were super big and, and, uh, really uh, a staple at that time. Like I said, when those deuces started, when I first started throwing them, they were already well-established. The bulldogs were crushing fish for sure. But um, again, you get those new baits and that was one where I really feel like I was, you know, right at the head of that, uh, right at the head of that bait coming to, coming into its own and really gaining steam here. That That's why that one would be my pick. And I could give a hundred other examples of just times where that, for years where that bait was just, I mean, you, you couldn't go wrong. You know, the fish hadn't seen it. And in our area, you have got so many lakes that, you know, you go to a 300 acre lake where that, you know, it'd be no different than with a any bait. That's just a proven fish catcher. Like when the Lake X stuff first came out, that was another really good example. Lake X top waters. Yeah. There's a lot of other prop baits out there, but there was something about those that the fish just something about that sound. It was notably different. There was something about it that they really, really, really liked double cowgirls, you know, and, and so on and so forth on the list. Um, but we have so many different lakes here that you were able to exploit that pattern in a way and, like I said, if you've, got a, if you've got a hot tip on what the next one of those baits will be, I'd love to have it because that's the first thing I'd do. Keep it quiet and go burn up as many fish as you can on all these different little lakes up here before they get wise to the program because these days everybody gets a hot bait in their box within a season or two of it coming to light if it is indeed a fish catching machine like, some, like all the baits I mentioned are. And I think, again, that is even 10 years ago, that was something that wasn't, you know, things didn't spread quite as quickly. And now the, the channel of information is just so 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 fluid and so dynamic that it, it
1: word gets out so fast but uh yeah no that would be my choice i would say medusa so you know the the crazy part to this whole thing you know you're talking about a lot of new baits and how fish really react to new baits and and what have you but you know ultimately there's no question about it the uh the medusa is a staple in the industry and it, and it's going to maintain that staple position for a long time is there anything that uh you potentially maybe change some of your other fishing with other baits that the medusa provided for you so here and here's the thing i would
10: attribute to kind of a hard thing to put into words right so here's the thing i would say it's a great question i I think the way at least the way my brain works with it with fish is when you're fortunate enough to have a bait like that and again i would say i know i'm off topic and that is my one choice was the medusa for sure but you know there's no matter how good a fish catching bait is like, it's not like they're always on a rubber program or always on a bucktail program or always on whatever category of bait that hot fish catching machine bait is in. Right. So you still have that variability, like a, you know, they're not necessarily eating the same thing in a post frontal tough day as they are before a thunderstorm. So you, you have like those baits where they're, they're always kind of good, but then there's those times when they shine. And if you're lucky enough to have a couple of those in your box, which again, I was, especially early on where you had all these hot baits, the baits that were like the new thing and, and I mean, you, you more than anybody can attest to, again, what do we have for gear back then to throw this stuff? I mean, you were beating the living tar out of your body just to throw a lot of this stuff, big blades, big rubber. I mean, being the two most extreme examples, certainly. And, uh, you know, you to have that ability to catch fish. You still have to match up like the bait with what's going on in the environment, right? Like you still, even the best bucktail isn't going to produce great if it's a rubber bite or a jerk bait bite or a glide bait bite and so on and so forth. You could interchange any one of those bait categories with that. You know, even the best rubber bait isn't going to do great if they're chasing top water, right? It's not what they want at that time. There's something about what's going on in the system, something about how they're wired for that day and something about the program that they read that morning when they woke up, but that's what they're eating right now. And sometimes that changes even hourly, especially on super pressured fish. Getting back to what I was saying, having those, the ability to have those types of baits in your box early on, Was something that opened my eyes to the fact that in most cases, those fish are always right where you think they are. Electronics may have solidified that now with the tens of thousands of hours I've spent in a boat since, you know, staring at side scan and, you know, you see them say, oh, well, they're not in the weeds today. We're not having a good day. Oh, well, I've marked nine fish on the outside, you know, two cast lengths or cast length out into the basin. Well, that's something that also kind of reinforces those points of, well, maybe they have moved or this or that. But getting to my point, having those dates. And, you know, the rubber in particular, being able to rip it over weeds and do things that most people never really thought to. I mean, for the first number of years guiding, I mean, nobody ever, you take that out and they go, aren't those just for fall? You know, and, and I get where people got that from, because that's where, like a lot of the articles you would have read in something like a musky hunter or seen on, you know, on with sarah or a lot of people, that's kind of what that bait was, was really known for. And I still think a lot of people, especially in Minnesota, like the Medusa is very much a summer not a summer program. I mean, people have figured it out now, but up until a couple of years ago, I still feel like it was just so many people throwing blades over there because those fish love blades, like way more than our fish do. Like the big fish. I mean, just in general, like the Minnesota fish seem to just, I mean, we catch a lot of fish on blades here, but I don't know if it's a pressure thing if it's just something between the strain, I don't know what it is, but anyway, it's it's a technique anywhere, right? Bucktails are popular, but just in general, there was a really big misconception that that like that type of a bait was just a fall bait. And nothing could be further from the truth, you know, point in case that opening day, from, I think that was 2012, 2011 or 2012. It was a while ago, but that, um, you know, that was having the ability to catch those fish opens your eyes to let you know and fish with confidence that those fish are there. Even now, like I said, right now, again, Lisa, Medusas are always going to catch fish. Bulldogs are always going to catch fish, but, you know, double cowgirls and, and Suex and everything else, they're always going to catch fish. They've proven themselves time and time again. But they don't make the mistake as often as they used to or as willingly as they used to. But the fact that you used to be able to like when you've seen it and you know that a lot of that is because of habituation, at least that's my theory on it. I think it is because these fish see them. Like you would never see people throwing those types of baits, you know, ten years ago or nine years ago, eight years ago. Very few. And if they did, it was probably somebody that you knew, right? It was another tournament fisherman, somebody else that from the somebody else that was kinda on in the inner circle of what's going on in the industry, somebody else that knew the program a lot of our best fishermen up here in particular um and uh i, I think it really just changes it changed my perception because i I can't tell you how many times and i've got a bunch of great you know i mean maybe not great by today's standards but greats at the time i mean i started running a gopro yeah 10 12 11 12 years ago somewhere in the neighborhood of um you know 650 musky related videos on my hard drive and my on my external hard drive and how many of those days were like the really good days were days that I showed up at a boat launch and, you know, you you'd bump into somebody that was, Oh yeah, we fished eight hours. We never seen anything. And you could tell they're just like a couple of older dudes throwing their, you know, whatever bucktail or whatever smaller jerk bait or something. You would go out there and start tossing big rubber and crack five fish. You know, I, it was nothing, I didn't, there was nothing I like to hear more than somebody telling me that the fish weren't biting, especially when it was on the water. I really knew intimately. So I guess to, to answer your question in a little bit shorter version there, yeah, it changed how I fish because it, it opened my eyes to what was going on in there. It also opened my eyes to my ability as an angler to, to make them eat it, if that makes sense. You know, rubber, you can really manipulate, you can snap it, you can pop it, you can you know, really, really impart a lot of action, a lot of aggressive action in particular, especially when you've got fish in heavy cover that, it makes them come out and eat it. And again, like I said, as time has gone by, it's gotten a little bit harder, certainly because the fish, you know, they fool me once, fool me twice kind of program, but it's really, really to go in behind and again, seeing it in tournament scenarios over and over and over again, whether it be somebody catching fish behind somebody else or me catching some fish behind somebody else or watching, you know, or any other case where you watch somebody go and work a nice, good spot with bucktails and come in behind with rubber and crack two fish right behind them. I mean, you just see it over and over and over. And again, guiding solidified that too, where you had a guy up front from a bucktail guy in the back turn rubber. And one of the benefits of guiding too, right? You can have three lines fishing a lot of times and you can kind of analyze and coordinate everybody to make everybody a well-oiled machine. But it really drives that point home time and time again. And again, as those baits have, I don't want to say they've lost their luster because that's not it. It's just that the fish, you know, they've become just a, another good bait. They're not the magic bait anymore, but they've become just another really good, solid bait that you want in your lineup and you want to have. And there's a time and a place Again, it's all conditioning thing, in my opinion, or vastly mostly a conditioning thing. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's an eye opener, and then to try to take that knowledge with you, and knowing that those fish are there was was probably the biggest contribution.
0: You know, so Jeff, a lot of people think that rubber is a fall technique. Obviously, it's not. What situations would present you to use rubber during, say, early season, summer, whatever? The whole train. We don't need to go through the whole transition, but. Like what's a, what's a trigger exactly that you're looking for when you're on the water that would go, okay, today's a rubber day.
10: I think anybody who's thrown a lot of rubber could make the argument that every day's a rubber day. <laughs> um, but just because of the, 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 shape of the bait, the way that they run, the way that they trigger fish, um, that you're, you're always going to probably do a good rubber angler can get a bite most, most every day out there where if they're not chasing blades, it makes your job a lot harder. If they're not chasing top water, it makes your job a lot harder. Um, they're just such a versatile bait in general, the, the field of rubber and soft plastics that are out there that I think it's it's never really a bad option. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that on any given day, there's usually a rubber bait being thrown for at least a portion of the day in my boat. You know, if we dial in and Hey, it's a, they're chasing, you know, they're, it's juicy. They want to top water bucktail, you know, great. And then we'll, you know, we'll run that, or maybe I'll be running, you know, top water bucktail rubber usually something like that to kind of narrow down what they want and then focus in on what we're finding based on their behavior and their response. But, you know, there's never a bad time for it. I would say the use of rubber early in the season, you know, back again to that opening day example, I think the one thing that was different there was that a lot of those fish were already in post-spawn, those big females. Uh, I would say in using that, I would not say that Magnum rubber is a staple in my boat on opening day. In in a year, if we were to get something like a 2012 where the ice is gone in March, you know, almost a record ice off, if not a record ice off, things are, you know, pretty stable in the spring, pushes things up, Weed growth is far advanced beyond what it normally would be for that time of year. And as with the fishing, fish's life cycle in terms of them being well past the spawn, or at least most of the individuals in the system being past the spawn and already utilizing that weed cover versus going back open water which is what a lot of those females do in our area or using the open water adjacent to the bays. Um, I would say it's more about what you're targeting in the system. If you're going to show that kind of stuff early in the year, typically I would say that's, that is a, still a very good presentation if you're truly fishing for some of the biggest fish in the system. That doesn't mean that they won't still eat a jig and a minnow, right? You're going to go get a 40 pounder on a jig and a minnow too. But it, it's, it's still a very good offering from day one on i i guess like i said one of the one of the things about that bait though is that you really can impart a lot of action to make them eat it and that, that is, i feel something that there's very few other baits out there that give you the ability to to put that kind of aggression and that kind of fish trigger response into a bait and again it's not not everybody can do it maybe the way that certain people can but when you see guys out there really working and really snapping i mean i fish with you know spencer berman out in st Clair, another guy too that can really work rubber you know it's kind of the same thing as you see how somebody works a bait like that and you go, well, yeah, of course the fish eats it. Like, how can they not eat that? They're going to eat it, you know? And I feel like that's something that it, it it's something that rubber is, is pretty unique to rubber. You can make that argument with some jerk baits certainly and some other stuff out there too. Certainly there's guys that work a sewer really super well, but again, a lot of limiting factors for that stuff is that the depth range that a lot of those baits run in is relatively shallow, whereas rubber, you can still get deeper. Um, it's just, it's just such a versatile bait that there's really never a bad time. And no matter where the fish are in the system, you can still access them, whether they're open water or, or up in the heavy cover. It's, there's really uh, and now we've got so many great options, you know, see the shallow running, running with the, with the heavy head for the bulldog or the deep threat weights for the chaos stuff. And you've got so many options in there and every, so many more sizes and just every color under the sun. There's just so many great options out there that there's really never a bad time.
0: And one quick question, if you're, if somebody's new to Medusa's, they don't have one or you know, haven't, haven't thrown one much, what size do you think is the best one for people to be throwing on a, obviously it varies, you know, day to day, season to season, but yeah. For, for the average angler, what, what size should they be throwing?
10: I mean, I don't think there's ever a wrong time to go, go big or go home. I mean, maybe a pounder or a monster Medusa or something like that, that, you know, that that Magnum size rubber, um, maybe a little bit much, I would say sometimes at least on our waters, there may be times when that you're, you're definitely excluding some fish from biting it whereas something smaller might might kind of, you know, the big fish will eat it, and so will the smaller ones. Um, but the mid-sized Medusa is for sure the best all around, I would say. Uh, and, and what I would do for, the, if you're buying your first rubber bait, buy, I, I like to run the ones, I actually do run the shallow ones a lot, especially early in the season uh, when you're fishing a lot shallower. It's easier to keep the shallow running versions above the weeds if you're snapping upwards um, and, and keeping it up high and, and really working through that cover and causing commotion. You can work those, and they've got a little bit more hang time uh, I also like them again in the fall, especially if the fish are still shallow. Uh, you can even pair those up with that deep turret weight and, uh, and and you'll get a different action than you would with running just the regular one with the regular weighting or the, I should say the mid-size or the regular size. It's kind of a confusing thing there because regular meaning not the size, but regular meaning the weighting. Um, but I would say the, what is called the mid Medusa and then buying, you know, buy one in uh, with the hole punch in the back, which means it's the shallow version and buy one of the, ones without the whole punch, which is the regular one. And it'll give you a lot of options in terms of one, it's easier to pull the one also with the, uh, with the whole punch with the shallow version. It's a little easier for folks to pull too. I've noticed that with customers and that too, sometimes I'll give it to them. And if they're not maybe as speedy on the reel as somebody who's, you know, hi- hyper and wired like myself, that's snapping and, you know, overworking the lure, you can easily do that with a lighter running version. But if it's somebody that's not operating at that kind of speed or cadence, or if you're decidedly working a bait slower, such as earlier in the year or later in the year, um, that longer hang time can really, really, really give you an advantage both in working the bait and also triggering strikes.
0: Well, I think that uh, that'll that'll do it for for this segment. I think you covered rubber pretty well, and uh, so Jeff, quickly, if anybody's looking to get in touch with you to book a trip this year, how do they go about doing that?
10: Ah, uh, you can look me up on um, on social media. Um, my cell number is nine two zero six three nine six two eight six. You can check me out. Also. And, um, you can reach us through howtocatchmusky.com for Musky Academy, which will be getting launched here shortly. And then we've also got, we also got my website, wisconsinmuskyfishingguide.com.
0: Sounds good. Well, thanks for being part of this episode, Jeff. We really appreciate it. We'll have to catch up at some point this season and, uh, get together a full episode.
10: Yeah, absolutely, man. i looking forward to hope we can spend some time in the boat together again this year too, Jeff.
0: For sure. Sounds good. Thanks,
1: Jeff. And you, and you too, Brad, we got to tie in one of these days. I don't disagree, Jeff. We'll, uh, we'll be talking at some point, I'm sure.
10: Sounds good, buddy. Let's try to make some work for the summer. I'd love to get in the boat with you. All right, man. Take care. Or vice versa. Yeah, take care. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: All right. Our second to last guest is Rob Manthai with Rob Manthei Guide Service. And he's out of northern Wisconsin. Rob, I know it's probably a little chilly up there. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Hopefully uh, this, this gets you... Uh, you know, into the summer spirit, I guess, and out of so much ice fishing and cold weather.
11: Yeah, no, this is much better than the alternative, trust me. I It was 29 below zero this morning. You know, I guess on the upside, there was no wind. So it feels like it was actually, you know, 29 below instead of, you know, 45, 50 below like it had been. So anyway, yeah, it, uh, I put it this way. I'd rather be talking about fishing than actually doing it today. So.
0: Yeah, that's probably a rare a rare feat, I would say.
11: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, not not hard to say for this guy in the wintertime, but, uh, but yeah, if it was open water, it'd be a little different
0: story. Right. So, yeah. Rob, with this episode, what we've been doing is we've been asking people about one musky lure that's changed, I guess, the way they've musky fished, changed their tactics, changed their thought process. Just something that's made them change something. And so for this episode, I'm going to just let you, uh, kind of talk about, you know, what it is that you want to talk about as far as what, what bait has, you know, kind of changed your muskie fishing. And I think this conversation is going to go a couple different ways yet.
11: Okay. Well, um, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, that's a real good question. I mean, there's, there's so much out there, you know, that, that's been new and, uh, and variations of, of stuff. I mean, you know, we, we saw. You know, the first rubber baits come around, you know, when we saw the bulldog show up. I mean, it was a insane fish-catching bait, you know, and, and great for a, a bait manufacturer because, you know, it caught fish and, and it got tore up and you had to have another one so you had to go buy it, you know. But, uh, you know, we saw a whole variation of uh, rubber baits come off of that since then. And, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of rubber. I mean, I'm just a big fan of bass that, that catch fish in general. But uh, if I'd have to narrow things down, because you know our lakes that we have up here are not very big. I mean, a, a 1,500 acre lake is a fairly fairly substantially sized body of water. So you know you don't have you know the populations of muskies in these lakes like you would in these you know big Minnesota lakes or, or Canada or Canadian Shield lakes. So you know, we have an aquarium effect, you know, we can only have so many fish in the lake and they see a lot of hooks. You know, we, we have a lot of fishermen that travel to Northern Wisconsin. So there's a lot of pressure out there. And, uh, you know, it, it has seemed to me that on some of these bodies of water, you know, fish do get conditioned to lures, maybe lure type, retrieve types. I've seen that I think happen to where, you know, lakes that, uh, you know, we used to catch a lot of fish, say, on, you know, on, on rubber baits, You know, um, you know, maybe a, one example that I found that uh, I like to work a, a tube like a jerk bait. And, you know, I was just knocking the snot out of fish on it. And, you know, every year after that, it's just like, OK, you know, they they'll follow it. And when fish follow rubber, you know, you know, they're not they're not active or it's tough to make them, you know, trip them in, into biting. But, you know, and that could just be changing up a retrieve style or so be it, whatever. But one thing that I have seen that I really think, I don't want to say has changed everything, but what I have seen not go in that direction is honestly just the the concept of of double blades. You know, you you can have that bait, do a variety of things. You know, you can fish them. You can slow roll them. You can burn them you know just a steady retrieve you can pulse them uh you can do so many different things with that type of bait but number one thing is it's a very easy bait to throw I, i i guide a lot of people from may until freeze up for muskies and uh you know my job is to try to get them a fish on the end of their line and you know some might are experienced some aren't you know that experience but it's always i look at it this way the more the more casts that you can make in a day efficiently the better chances you are going to catch fish and what what easier bait to do that than is with you know some type of a variation of bucktails and you know when this whole advent came around you know you you really thought about it. it's like well okay this is going to change come next year and it wasn't you know you know it was always kind of funny the discussion that i would have with steve herbeck when we'd be fishing on eagle lake and you know one year it was uh you know the Top Raider was the hot top water bait for muskies. Well, then the next year the Pacemaker came out, different sound. You know, it's like what bait's gonna gonna keep these fish, you know, guessing, and you're gonna keep catching fish on them. And we always thought, you know, boy, you know, they're gonna get conditioned to these double blades and so on and so forth. And you know, black and orange isn't so great, but now now we have this blade that's called black nickel, but we call it smoke because you can't see it in the water and you know it it just it's these fish just seem to keep getting tripped by these baits over and over and over and you'll see it happen you know you could sit there and play around with you know weights on the blades you know whether one's the thickness version different um you know different sizes um you know adding adding extra Beads or or things that these clevises can grind on and make a different sound. You can you can just tweak them so differently to just stay that one step ahead of fish, and you know, always presenting them with a different sound. And and you'll, I mean, like I said, you'll see it. You'll see how they act when they come flying to the boat, and you know, you know that they're going to eat it on that first turn. It's because they've never seen something like that before, and they and they want it. You know, if they shy off, well. You know, then it's like time to go back to the drawing board. But, um, yeah, I, I almost have to think that, uh, you know, the way if I'm going to go and fish a body of water that I've never been on before, I mean, the first thing I'm going to give the first bait going through on a spot is going to be some type of a double-bladed bait. And uh, just because it's just the ultimate confidence lure for me on any body of water, whether I've fished it for 40 years or never seen it in my life.
1: So Rob, you know, one of the things that I think people are probably wondering is, you know, are we talking big blades? Are we talking small blades? W- exactly, what are we talking? And then maybe share kind of how you handle that product, what, whatever it might be, what kind of equipment you're using, and and your approach to using those as well. Sure,
11: um, you know, for the most part, Brad. I mean, our, you, you know, it, it's it's almost I let the fish kind of decide what they want. I mean you know with today's equipment you know you don't have to sit there and say oh my gosh I don't want to throw a double pen it's going to wear me out I mean you you put out the right equipment which we'll touch on here in a minute but you use the right equipment you know you're not fatiguing yourself but it, it almost seems to me that you know I've done better day in and day out over the last couple of years with more of the mid-size stuff I mean like double eight you know the say you know like the showgirl size, and you know and you know me. I like to you know I like to tie up my own base a lot of times. Sometimes you know I'll mess with the weights on them, or I'll add extra skirting or so on, just to you know increase that size. But I really saw myself in the last several seasons here that double tens have just not been getting used as much. I mean, as far as the biggest blades that I've been throwing you know have been you know up to the double nine and then you know sometimes just mixing mixing and matching you know sizes with them you know i'm i'm a big fan of the fluted blade and uh you know I, i i think sometimes uh you know just those different combination of blades make a big difference it's just something that that you can always change i mean it's you know you can't just per se take a a, a bulldog or a Medusa or a or something like that and, and change it. You know, I mean, you have certain colors and you have, you know, a, a handful of sizes at each of those baits. But in essence, when they come through the water, you know, they basically are still making the same sound of, of moving water. You know, they're pushing the water where you can bury that up so much with just how you uh, have, have a combination of blades. You know, whether it's a a 7 and an 8 or an 8 and a 9 or, you know, a a fluted blade with a Colorado blade or something like that that you can mix up or or two big fluted blades, you know. Anyways, that that type of stuff is is what I really look at, too. And, and, uh, you know, so many of these fish do bite at both sides in figure eights or or so on that, you know, when we're talking about equipment, you know, you kind of have to think about that. Uh, you know, and, and prepare yourself for making good figure eight. So, you know, the longer rods are, are obviously the obvious choice here. You know, I'm typically throwing eight and a half to nine to nine foot six rods and, uh, you know, just matching them up with a good solid reel that, uh, you know, that you can, that you can crank, crank these baits in nice and easy. I, I'm not personally, I'm not a big fan of power handles. But, you know, I like to use a reel that's in that, you know, 5.1 to, to 5.3. I mean, I think that's just a really good ratio, uh, even on the biggest blades, to, to um, you know, bring them in fairly easy and, and not wear you out. And, you know, and, and just have a nice, good, high-quality rod that, uh, you know, you feel comfortable with because, uh, you know, you are going to be fishing them a lot of times, you know, all day. You know that same motion can wear on you if you're not you know if you're it makes a difference if you if you have a mar, much heavier rod and real combo that's kind of clumsy and weights you down you know you will feel it you know it's just it's just like uh just like clothing you know the heavier clothes you have all day it wears on your back you know then the more uh the more up to date and and uh lighter you know insulations that we have
1: uh you know definitely don't wear you down it it's all it all makes sense yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And, and it's funny because I, I think a lot of our, uh, the way that you do things is a lot like the way I do it as well. You know, and, and you kind of touched on it too, Rob. I mean, think about it. A bucktail is probably one of the easiest baits for just about anybody to actually fish. You know, I mean, that's the bottom line. So when you when you have something that's easy to fish, you fish it a little bit differently than you would, say, something else.
11: And, and, you know, that's, that's another good thing that you just said there, um, you know, they are easy to fish and you do, you know, you fish it. everybody has a different style of retrieve. I got one customer that, I mean, he wants, he wants to burn the bait no matter what he's doing. You know, he just has the advent in his head that speed kills. And sometimes I need to, uh, you know, to tone him down a little bit to, you know, to, um, uh, you know, just, just keep his, uh, composure going, but I've watched him retrieve sometimes. And when he gets into his burning motion, he, he has after, because of some sh- shoulder surgery, it, it changes how he's, you know, cranking at high speed and he's almost working, you know, he's almost jerking the bait as he's reeling it in, in a rhythm. And it totally does something differently. And, uh, you know, those little type of things I've picked up on. And it's like, you know, I wonder. I wonder if just a plain vanilla retrieve would have caught that fish, or got that fish to follow, or hit, or something like that. But you know, like I said before, you know, with with the fact of having these big blades and and all the marabou or or flashabou on there, you, you can pulse it. You can just you can make that bait look different in the water. And you know, there's there's you're never going to see two people with any bait in general. You know, retrieve it the same way you get more variations when you, when it's, when you can start mixing and matching things like that in the bucktail world, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, that pretty much rounds it all the way back up. I mean, you were talking early in this whole conversation that, you know, there's certain baits that the cadence always seems to be the same. Yeah. You can get more violent with your cadence. You can get into a rhythm. You can do a lot of different things. You can go fast and slow. And, but at the end of the day, I agree with you, you know, in a bucktail format when you have blades those rhythms can be way more variants than if you were to do it with something else you know there's just so many more options i guess
11: no well, that's that is definitely true
1: and and you know when we talked
11: about uh blade size before a little bit you know i'm not going to complain you know if they're hitting on a smaller bait uh, again you know it just allows you to be more efficient and uh you know I mean, all of us that, uh, you know, that do this day in and day out, I mean, come on, we're all going to say, yes, we'd rather retrieve smaller, smaller blades than 10s, but you do what it takes when you have to do it. You know, there, there's a time and a place for all of them. That's for sure.
0: All right, Rob. Well, we thank you for coming out for episode 100. We had a, you know, a lot of guests on this one and, and we're glad that you were able to make it work out for us. If um, somebody's looking to book a trip with you or, or check out your resort, how do they go about doing that?
5: Um, well, to get a hold of me isn't too hard. You can
11: just punch my name in to any social media platform and you'll find me, uh, my website, you know, just my name, com. You know, on there also, it's got links to the resort, uh, the resort St. Germain Lodge. And again, that name, com is the website. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, not, not too hard to find, uh. Get a hold of me, and you know I can answer all your questions, resort sided and/or fishing um, related. So, talking about stuff like this uh, definitely helps uh, a day like today. You know, so <laughs> made it feel a little warmer out, anyways.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Rob. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule, and uh, good luck this season. Hopefully, we'll catch up at some point and do a full episode.
11: All right, sounds good. Thank you.
0: Thank you. All right, our last guest for the 100th episode is Josh Borowski. You can learn a a little bit more about Josh at promuskyguide.com. He's also involved with the Musky Insider Newsletter, so if you haven't, check out that too. Josh, uh, thanks a lot for coming out today.
8: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, Josh,
0: the purpose of this episode here is to give some people, I guess, a little bit of insight onto a bait that has... I don't know, changed your fish catches, changed your thought process, just basically changed you as a muskie angler. So I'll kind of, you know, leave it up to you to talk about what, what uh, bait you selected.
8: Sure. Uh, and this one will probably surprise you. I'm guessing maybe this is not one that anyone else has chosen. You guys can let me know if they have. But uh, <laughs> if I had to pick a bait, just because I look at the way I fish now and, and and maybe I should just start with like before I even get into the bait is I have like a very defined specific process to how I fish every day. You know, to me, there's just, there's a lot of things that matter, you know, the the side of the boat that you fish off matters. The order that you present your bait to the fish. And when you have multiple baits casting matters Um, and you know, to the point where it's going to affect your success rate or how many, you know, fish bites you convert into catches. But I guess I should also say that I realized like matters to me. I didn't realize how truly important this is to me until, um, once in a blue moon, I won't be guiding somebody, right. I'll get to fish with buddies. And that's when I realized how important the process is to me, because what happens is I am not captain of the ship anymore and I lose control you know, all my buddies are good fishermen. They're all going to like, you know, throw what they want to throw. Um, where when I'm guiding, usually, you know, I I can kind of tell people, you know, this is this is what we're gonna do and, and they tend to listen and just, you know, go along with the plan. And so a lot of times I'll find myself in these situations with my buddies where it's like we have maybe even the right three baits on for the situation and where we're fishing, but we're not fishing them in the right order. And then it starts to bother me, like I'm this is costing us fish. Like it starts to eat at me and I have to say something and we have to have a heart to heart about it, right? Until usually I you know, <laughs> I can and win him over and we'll either you know change spots in the boat or different people you know trade baits or whatever and that's when i realized how much this process means to me it all really goes back to a particular base i guess that, that maybe started it is the giant jackpot back uh back in the 90s that you know I, I i fell in love with that bait it was kind of uh you know, it was the first bait back then that I, you, like, you can operate, right? In, in your your work working the bait, and you get to impart all the action. You get to make the strikes happen. And it was so fun because you need to get these amazing, you know, just tidal wave follows behind the bait. You know, fish humping water, blow up just the, the coolest strikes visually. And a lot of times, back then, I was also fishing shallow. Um, and it just over time I was like so addicted to throwing that bait because I just felt like you know what I'm going to get more follows and more probably bites on this bait than anything else and I just had it welded to my rod but over time you kind of realize and have the revelation that you know that particular bait while it is super fun to use has very poor hooking percentages compared to a lot of other baits right and you're gonna have a lot of heartbreak when you throw it and so you know. and and some of those fish are going to be really big by the way and so what happens is you know every time you dump a really big fish on that bait when you get home you got to look in the mirror and ask yourself the question like you know if I would have been throwing a different bait that has better hooking percentages would I have caught that fish and what's a really big one and the answer is maybe yes right it's pretty hard to swallow so eventually you know I kind of started to you know, have this revelation that, you know, it's not just about how many bites you get. It's about how many bites get converted into catches. And so one of the big parts of this process or this philosophy that I'm talking about is always use the best hooking percentage baits that you can get away with. I'm a big believer in that. You know, if you fast forward, we're many years later when it kind of started to pull together too, it was like, uh, you know, Wendell's had the harasser and he had that, that kind of power speed bucktail way of fishing. And then there was a the musky candy and then the cowgirl came out, you know, and that was, you know, I think the thing that was kind of unique about that too, during that whole craze and heyday was just that, you know, the bigger hooks on that bait gave it even better hooking percentages than what we had experienced with, you know, all the bucktails that had preceded it. So, so that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. Right. And so, uh, you know, and now most of, you know, most of the bucktails we use have those bigger hooks and better hooking percentages. And so that losing all those fish on that jackpot in the beginning, back in the nineties is, you know, combined with what happened later on with the better hooking baits is what kind of brought me to this philosophy. And I could talk for a long time about it. And I know we're like limited on time, but I'll just give you like two little components because I think, you know, maybe for some of the listeners, it'll, you know, help them, you know, break down the water more efficiently this coming season and maybe put a few extra fish in the boat. But, you know, like I was saying, uh, so every, every bait has its hooking percentages. You know, you got your bucktails on one end. Those are your best hooking percentage baits. You got baits like the jackpot on the other end, you know, which are your poorest hooking percentage baits and everything else in between, in between is, you know, some, somewhere in there, right? It, it, it's uh, not quite as good or better than, than the bottom. On any given day, I always kind of the example I use. If I could clone myself and have two Joshes out there, and one's throwing a jackpot and one's throwing a bucktail, if the bites were exactly the same, at the end of the day, you know which Josh is going to catch more fish? Well, obviously the bucktail Josh is, right? Um, But with that being said, there are days, right, when the fish aren't eating bucktails, but they will eat a jackpot, so there's still a time and a place for it. And so um, part of this process I use, breaking down the water every day, is just like trying to figure out with like how good of a hooking percentage bait can we get away with today. And so I always like to present the baits to the fish. If I got three guys in the boat, the highest hooking percentage bait is always in the front, which is a bucktail, right? And then the lowest hooking percentage bait is in the back, which a lot of times is going to be me, and I'm always going to throw something, you know, a lot of times to start out the day that's more erratic and a poor hooking percentage bait just to cover that base, but the idea is is we're showing them a couple better hooking percentage baits first. So because if, if we can get bit on those, that allows us to, you know,
7: put that one of the
8: back away. And the other thing that kind of goes with this that I'll mention, too, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up is speed, it, you know, it, and always fish as fast as you can get away with as well. And again, you know, the cloned Josh scenario that I always give people is if I could clone myself and there were two Joshes out there and just for a more controlled experiment, let's say they're both Joshes are trolling and one Josh is going two miles an hour. And one Josh is going four miles an hour. You know, if the fish don't care about speed on that particular day, I'm calling at the end of the day, the Josh that's going four miles an hour is going to catch twice as many as the Josh going two, right? Just because he covered twice as much ground. Now, with that being said, there are days, right? Where the Josh that's going two miles an hour catch a fish and the Josh that's going four is not. So there's still a time and a place to go slow. And so... The other question along with how good of a hooking percentage bait can we get away with today is how fast of a bait can we get away with? Cause we want to get away with as fast as we can. And so again, so I put that bucktail in the front of the boat and, you know, even if I'm going to, you know, sometimes i will even run two bucktails, but whoever's in the front is always going to have the fastest moving bait in the boat. And who's ever in the back is always going to have the slowest, most erratic. And, you know, and I mentioned the hooking percentage thing already in the back of the boat. And to me, that's just the most efficient way to kind of, be doing all things at the same time in, in the right order. Um, because if you can get bit on those front baits, then it's telling you that you can get away with moving the bass. There's a boat faster, uh, covering the water faster, you know, with a higher hooking percentage bait. And if, if all the action's in the back, well, then this is maybe a day that we need to like slow down and, and pick things apart. And, and for me, um, you know, any anybody who's ever fished with me knows that this is, this is not something I'm just talking about for fun on this podcast it's something that I, I really believe in and I, I apply it on the water um, wherever I go at all times of year you know and those baits might shift a little bit in that process depending on the water temperature and the time of year but that process fastest to slowest best hooking the worst hooking that just always remains the same it's just it really uh ground
1: into me so two things Josh I mean you covered a yeah. lot of ground there quickly and I totally think you you nailed it with everything that you said but two things that I come to my mind. One, I want to know how often you go back to that jackpot. Now, you're talking 20-some years ago, right? So uh-huh. I want to know about that. And then the second part is I want to know what happens when your buddies are in the boat that uh, kind of removes you out of that captain realm. I, I'm just kind of more – just short, share a little bit more about that.
8: Okay. The jackpot, to be honest, I throw it very, very, like, seldomly. It just does not get thrown very much um, anymore. And and I kind of went through this progression where one, I just, you know, tried to, it was hard to, you know, just quit the habit, man. So, so it was such a fun bait to use, but then kind of what I, you know, I do think that that is a bait along with a handful of other baits that, you know, like a tube would be another, like one of my favorites, I would say that just, a, you know, in any other erratic bait, you know, depending on the situation, it could be a glider, you know, or a dive rise. But uh, but anyway, the the idea is, is that they're I'd call them more like trigger baits, right? When when fish are a little more neutral or lethargic, um, you can still trigger a bite. The jackpot then kind of got benched, but I always had it on a rod as a throwback bait, and I used to be really big on that. So like, if something followed me in, you know, I just had the you know the rod and the ready with the jackpot, and I'd cast that back, and it's kind of like okay. You know, I showed it the better hooking bait first, right. And it passed it up or it followed it. So now I'm going to roll the dice and take my chances with the jackpot, you know, have some good success, like triggering fish doing that. But I also still lost a few. And I think that over time at, you know, especially, you know, in those early stages of that process too, I wasn't guiding full time yet, you know, and I've been doing that for a long time now. And I think that, you know, maybe the other part of the revelation I've had is just that like in general, I know there's like exceptions and nothing's a hundred percent, but in general, I just feel like once a fish like touches the bait, like it's over. Like if you didn't catch it, you know, unless it comes back on that same retrieve or maybe like the next cast or two, um, unless you have some miracle, like incredibly hot fish, which I've seen, you know, that stuff happens. But generally I feel like if they make contact with that bait and you know, you don't catch it on that cast or the next couple, like you burn that fish and it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's it's done. Like it's moving on somewhere else, and it's time to go. Like you can keep going back to that spot, but I just um the waters I fish tend to have very poor success going back on those fish once they've touched it. Right, and so even having the jackpot reserved as that throwback, it was like you still only you know are gonna while you you, you got it to bite when it followed the other thing. You, you you know if you didn't get it, you burned it. Where you know. I guess they became more patient with like, we can come back and catch this fish later and maybe still get it to eat the better hooking bait. And so I think that my, you know, my mindset kind of shifted to that more and I err on the side of that um, versus, you know, rolling the dice and then burning that fish and never having another chance at it again. Um, You know, obviously if it's the end of a trip somewhere or the end of a tournament um, or, you know, like you just got to catch it now, no matter what, then I'm a little more willing to, to take that risk. And that's when a bait like that might come out. To be honest, I probably a lot of times still, uh, you know, choose a tube or a glider as long as I can get away with it, you know, with where I am. Sometimes, it, you know, if you're trying to get if a sufficient shell in the weeds, they need to get over the top of it. That's where a bait like that might come into play. And and even then, now there's, you know, since that bait's been created, there's also, other walk the dog top waters, you know, that are, that are heavier, right. They have three hooks on them. Um, you know, better hooking percentages still get a lot of that triggering action maybe a little bit different sound, but you know, again, up your chances just a little bit. So,
1: so that's that question. And then what was the other one, Brad was about, uh, like losing control of the ship. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, what, what does that all mean? I want to hear the whole deal because I'm going to guess we have listeners out there who fish a certain way with a certain friend and then yeah. all of a sudden they have that friend, you know what I mean? And maybe, yeah. You kind of yeah.
5: About-
1: well, you know what, I, you know, what I think really it
8: boils down to is what is your philosophy together as a group in the boat that day. Right. And I just, especially being a guide, right. You just, you're definitely, if you're a, if you're a muskie guide, you're in the wrong business. If you're out there just to catch fish for yourself, it's like, it's for, like if anybody in the boat, like catches a fish it's it's awesome and just as good right and, and that's you kind of have to have that mindset that you're a team out there and not everybody has that right like especially maybe if a guy's in a slump, right and he hasn't like he's been fishing hard for like weeks and he's just been getting skunked or maybe he's been in the boat when some fish haven't been caught and you know he starts to want it a little bit more and so you know, it's just, it's basically, I think the difference between, is it every man for himself or are we trying to work together as a team here to put as many fish in the boat as possible? Because they're two different things. If you're, if you're, if you're trying to do it as a team, I think that going about it the way that I just talked about is the way to do it right. Where you all communicate and you're, you know, you're fishing your baits in a particular order probably goes along a little bit with the whole perfect partner thing uh, that Dick Pearson talked about in his book back in the day, you know, versus. Fishing by yourself, and and sometimes, sometimes I don't even think people have bad intentions. They're just not, you know, you just you're just fishing, and and I just uh like I said, it it, it good, bad or otherwise. I think I get pretty uh stuck in some of my, my my processes, not my ways, but I I feel like if the process works, it still leads you to new baits and new techniques and things. But
1: but that process is pretty sound, so I have a hard time, you know, leaving it. Yeah, that that totally makes sense, and I. I don't remember the Dick Pearson tidbit about the perfect partner, but I can only imagine where that goes. I mean it totally makes sense. I mean, not everybody can be compatible on a boat. So it's um that's something I'm gonna have to dig up and try to listen to.
8: Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. And it's been a while since I read it too, but I just remember it was just more of the concept about sometimes even just casting the opposite direction and everything else. So but but definitely, I mean, something for, for guys to think about and maybe have a heart-to-heart with their musty buddy this winter about <laughs> how
1: they're going to go about things this, uh, this coming season. Yeah, I think that could be a, another whole podcast, honestly. I mean, there's a <laughs> bunch of different factors that we could discuss in that realm.
0: Yeah. So, Brad, I think what we need to do is, next time we have Dick on, we just need to ask him about The Perfect Partner, and we'll just have him do a podcast on that.
1: That would be intriguing, too. I mean, honestly... He, he likes to blow your mind, honestly, and you know that, Jeff, and so does Josh. Josh knows it just cool. as well, and he's very concrete with his answers and what he truly feels, and he, he'll he tell you straight out, you don't have to believe him, but this is how I feel. So
0: yep, absolutely. It, it's cool. For sure. So, Josh, I just want to thank you for coming out and joining us for 100th episode. Someday we're going to get you back on and do a full episode as long as you're open to it. For people that want to know a little bit more about your guide service in the Muskie Insider newsletter, why don't you talk to them about that?
7: Sure,
8: uh, you know my guide service. Uh, my website is promuskieguide.com. dot com. The one kind of interesting caveat is that Muskie with an I E. But then we have Muskie Insider, which, if you're not familiar, uh, is a we're actually a weekly. Uh, must be publication. So we send out a newsletter every single week. It's 100% free, doesn't cost anything, no hidden costs, nothing. And it gets delivered right to your email inbox if you subscribe. Otherwise, you can also, uh, you know, check out our website, we have all of our past issues archived there. There's actually a lot of good information there. And uh, you can also follow us on our social pages, pages on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well.
0: Well, once again, Josh, we just want to thank you for coming out for this episode. We really appreciate it, and uh, I, I we're looking forward to catching up with you on a full episode in the future.
8: I would enjoy that as well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Well, all right, that puts a cap on episode one hundred of Backlash Podcast, and we just want to thank everybody for you know staying with us for this entire episode. I understand it was long. Hopefully, you made it to the end. We, you know, we appreciate if you did, but we tried to bring, I guess, as mu- as many different. Minds, different weather, regions, levels of experience. We tried to bring it all to the table in this episode and show you that um, you know there's definitely certain baits that they that they prefer. Definitely, people that thought that obviously the you know the cowgirl, the mayhem products were talked about a lot. But we also want everybody to know that we only selected 11 people. We we're not in any way trying to tell you that the other baits that are out there are of lesser quality or lesser baits. I'm sure if we dug far enough we could have found somebody that was willing to offer up lots of different suggestions. Everybody has their personal favorite. And so we just took a, bu- a random sampling of of guests that we've either had on the podcast or not had on the podcast and we just had them, you know, offer it up. You know, if you could have listened to our pre-episode recordings, it wasn't so simple as everybody was like, "Oh yeah, it's definitely this bait." Most of them would have preferred if we we left them with a the top 3. Don't you agree, Brad?
1: Yeah, and I think you know, even some of them didn't want to talk about something that had already been picked, you know. So that left kind of uh, an open gap as well. But there's definitely certain baits throughout history of musky angling that have definitely made a difference in the industry. And um, and I think we got a little sampling, you know. That that's the best way to say it.
0: I mean, ultimately, if you're a beginning musky angler, though. And you don't have some sort of, you know, junior cowgirl, cowgirl, bulldog, Medusa, Suic in your, in your box. I think you're making a mistake already. I mean, those should, they should have been staples regardless of what this episode brought to the table.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that 100%, Jeff. I mean, uh, each one of those companies that we're just talking about definitely made some changes and were they revolutionary? Some were, some weren't. And um, you know, it's always interesting, you know, you put somebody on the spot, you know, and a lot of them are guides that we talk to and some are just anglers. But, you know, when you put them on the spot, it gets interesting really quick because uh, there was a couple of them that I think were sweating a little bit when it came down to it. And one experience might have been from 15 years ago, one experience might have been from 30 years ago, and then it had been from three years. You know, it, it it's weird because as you evolve in this sport, your brain kind of changes and goes different directions accordingly. And so, and some of that is probably marketing and whatever else, but ultimately I I think the whole deal was, uh, it was interesting to to be able to listen to.
0: Yeah, I would agree. You know, and I think at some point we'd like to, you know, do this again, maybe not the same question with the, you know, casting baits we'd like to do with a few other things. So if anybody has any feedback either on this episode, whether you liked it or you didn't like it, I know it might have gotten a little long for some of you, but hopefully podcast-wise you'll listen to it multiple times on your drive into the office or when you're at the gym or snow blowing or ice fishing or whatever you'll do. Maybe maybe you're lucky enough and you're listening to it on your way to fishing. That would be fantastic as well. But, you know, if you got any suggestions on things that we can do in the future, we're always looking to change it up here at on this podcast. We're you know, Brad and I we don't want to get bored. We also don't want you guys to get bored. And so this was one way that we thought, you know, would be uh, you know, kinda interesting, I guess. Like I said, we we anticipated getting long. I don't know that either of us anticipated it getting as long as you as it did, but backlash at gmail.com, That is the email to get in touch with us at the podcast. We've said it in many other episodes. The podcast is always secondary to running our own businesses and dealing with our personal family stuff. So if uh, you send us an email and you haven't heard back from us for a week, it's possible that uh, we just didn't have time that week. We will get, we will eventually get around to it. Sometimes you catch me in the right mood and I get an email and I'm I happen to be right there on my phone uh, and I'll turn around and answer really quick or Carrie will. But um, other times, you know, just give it a little bit, give us a little bit of patience on the email portion of it. And you know, I, from Brad, Carrie, and myself, and I'll let Brad talk to it too. We just want to thank everybody for. 100 episodes i don't i know it was a goal that we set out to do hopefully we get to two 300 episodes and we'll see what happens down the future but uh you know we just can't thank everybody for listening to us every single week enough
1: yeah absolutely jeff i mean first of all thank you to all the listeners and um you know i i love hearing from the listeners i know you know we kind of missed out on that this year with the shows because that's where I really kind of get to talk to people and get to hear, hey, man, we love this. We love that. Ultimately, man, you know, it comes down to it's a, it's a bunch of time, actually, in, in some sense. But the, the minimal amount of time that we get to put into this and, and the efforts that we try to come up with, I think it's all been worth it. and I think everybody appreciates it. So, hey, we got number 100 in the can. That's pretty cool. And I hope there's another 100, Jeff.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. One thing before we go, though, is we always thank our listeners, but we also want to thank all of our guests. We couldn't do it without our guests on a weekly basis or a mostly weekly basis. I know Brad and I, you know, occasionally we drop in an episode that, you know, might be just me and Brad talking, answering some questions we posed on Facebook or Instagram or wherever. And, but we honestly, you know, not only is it, you know, Brad and I and and Carrie, you know, putting it together, but uh, it's a lot of our guests too. So if, you know, if you think about it, you know, maybe reach out to one of our guests, think about booking a trip with one of our guests or, you know, even just send them a a text or a Facebook message or an email saying, Hey, thanks for taking your time out of your schedule to come talk fishing with them because, you know, ultimately they're out here sharing their information to try to help you catch more fish. I mean, that's what this, that's what this podcast set out to do. And that's what we're going to continue to set out to do. And, and hopefully we're accomplishing it.
1: I would agree, Jeff. And, And the other part to that is, is that, uh, we're recording some history here, honestly. I mean, I, I'm a history buff, and I, I love the sport of musky fishing, and it's been a, a huge part of my life, and I think uh, we're only trying to share back with uh, what what we have for experiences, and hopefully this is a, a whole big, giant load of uh, an encyclopedia, if you will, of musky fishing at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I don't remember which one of our guests on this 100th episode said something about or... About or maybe it was a different episode, either way, it doesn't matter. You know, they said, do you guys realize the history that you're putting out, the roadmap you're putting out to, you know, help people catch more muskies? And I guess at that point, I mean, I, I realized we do it on a week-to-week basis, but I didn't look at the encyclopedia of everything you have that to look back on. If you, you know, if you're looking for musky information you want to know about october of 2019 you could probably go back and listen to an episode and you'd kind of have an idea of what happened in 20 october 2019 so and and anywhere along this this uh journey it's been it's been quite the ride it's been uh it's been a fun adventure and hopefully everybody continues to listen to it so i guess uh brad unless you got something else to add to this episode
1: i i don't think i do jeff i think uh The episode probably got long enough. (laughs) (laughs) It, It became a monster, put it that way.
0: Absolutely. Anyways, we want to thank all of our listeners again for listening to episode 100, and we will catch everybody next week.